Hi, Swamp Dweller. I am a white witch who has dealt with the paranormal since birth. I grew up in a haunted house and have been immersed in that world my entire life. However, this Halloween, just gone by, I was lucky enough to witness something new. It had been a fun night out with one of my coven sisters and her partner. We were driving home with an epic electrical storm happening all around us. They don't have a car now, so I was driving them. This meant driving them home for 18 kilometers and then driving back out to rejoin the motorway and continue on my own way. We live in an extremely old and magical valley in New South Wales. I had to drive through 18 kilometers of bushland in the middle of nowhere on a little traveled road to get home and then drive back out. I dropped off my friends and made a joke about the haunted bushland and continued back out to the road. I drove carefully reading the energy signatures along the road as I didn't want to hit any of the wildlife that was out and about. I saw bandicoots and bush rats, pretty standard for a lonely country road at that time of night. It was fairly late. The sky continued to put on its light show, and I was nearly back into the small township you passed by before rejoining the motorway, when I sensed something huge was up ahead. I could also feel it was moving quite fast. At first, I thought it was maybe somebody's horse or an errant cow. But as I came to the outskirts, my headlights illuminated the coolest but weirdest thing I had ever seen. Rushing right at my car was this large and hairy creature. It was grinning with sheer delight and moving super fast. I slowed my car down, not wanting to hit this huge, hunched, and hairy creature that was out enjoying the storm and obviously having the time of its life. Before I could completely stop, it ran right at me, still grinning for all it was worth. I braced for impact, but nothing happened. It seemingly tucked up and disappeared underneath my car. And that was it. My mouth hanging wide open, I pulled the car over and looked back. Lightning flashed, trees whipped in the wind, but nothing else moved. I was once again alone on the road in the middle of nowhere. I pulled back onto the road and continued home, trying to process what I had seen. Was it a werewolf? It certainly closely resembled one. I told my friends and they also confirmed seeing a similar creature running out on the quieter local roads in the area. Our area is known for a lot of paranormal activity, especially with the local native Australian communities and history of our area is very rich. After more discussion with other coven members, we concluded that it was probably a waragal, a native Australian shapeshifter. Waragals can assume any form but favor a large form of our native dingoes, which can walk upright on the hind legs. I have driven on that road multiple times since, and I have never seen anything as interesting or as creepy. I am a Hispanic female, Mexican to be exact, and this happened on my family's ranch just last night. My family consists of my parents, me and my little brother. My other brother is at basic training right now for the Air Force. So, for now, it's just us. I wanted to sit down and get this all out while I can. I live in New Mexico, the southeastern part right on the Texas state line. We're pretty much in the middle of nowhere, like literally 10 minutes east and you're in Texas. Anyways, I live 15 miles outside of my hometown and 8 miles over from the town over. My family has a cattle ranch, and I live just off the highway, so people coming on our ranch are usually people we know. 
I think I live in the safest place anyone could possibly live with little to no worry about something or someone wanting to cause me and my family harm. Well, last night proved me wrong. Let me briefly explain the layout of my place. We have the main entrance with the ranch name and cattle guard. Then, to the right, a few hundred feet over, is the gate we use for the cattle when they're being moved. But once you come onto our land, we have a giant silver barn and attached to it is an overstay house where workers would go and stay overnight during harvesting seasons. Then, it's my house a little bit away further, about a two to three minute walk. Anyways, my mom's cousin from Mexico is renting the overstay house from my parents while he works here in the US for privacy reasons. His name will be Antonio for the story. So last night, around 8pm, it was thunderstorming pretty bad. Antonio heard a knock at the door. Come in, he said, assuming it was either my mom or dad, but no. In walked a dirty looking white man about 5'9 with a goatee that was obviously tweaking and talking really fast which obviously freaked Antonio out seeing he doesn't speak English. So Antonio calls my dad and told him, hey there's some guy here in my apartment and I don't know what he wants or how to get him out. Right away my dad drives to the apartment with his gun and demanded to know what business the man had on our land. They told me to like come here and talk to you. Who sent you to come talk to me? It was a talking dog. He wanted me to warn y'all that the world is going to end and your dogs are talking to me too. Referring to my two dogs, Sheba and Sombra, who were barking and growling at him like crazy. Look, friend, I think it's best you get off my property. Yeah, yeah, I should leave. He then proceeds to hop the cattle guard gate, and my dad calls the sheriff department and explained what was happening. And if this man didn't get off our property, my dad was going to make sure he doesn't leave breathing. After this phone call, my dad and Antonio are just looking at the man on the other side of the gate. He was flailing his arms around like a tweaker does and talking at the top of his lungs. Then he did the most ungodly thing. He started screaming, demonically, then proceeded to run down the highway. Once the police came, they told my dad they had gotten calls about him and apparently he lived close by to our ranching community. Great. We have a crackhead neighbor. My dad just told them he better not come to our land again because my dad said he doesn't know him, he's not welcome, and he doesn't know his intentions, and he's not scared to shoot him if he has to. The sheriffs then left and everyone got ready for bed. Then, early this morning, sometime around 3 a.m., Antonio called my dad again, panicked because the man was knocking on the apartment door and he was holding a gun. My dad got up quickly and told my mom to call the police. And when my dad got to the apartment, the man was going through Antonio's truck. And once he saw my dad, he booked it once again. My dad was raging. He told the police if he went further than the apartment and got anywhere near our home or went through our vehicles again, he was going to shoot the man where he was standing. And that was a warning to them now. We don't have a security system. We just locked the front and back door. And we've never felt the need to lock our vehicles until that day. We do, however, have security cameras now. One facing the main entrance and our vehicles, one right by the front door, and one facing the area where our cattle are and our two horses. Unfortunately, my dogs are all bark and no bite. Sheba is about seven years old and is a lab mix, and Sombra is almost two, and she's a red healer. The dogs are mostly on our porch watching the cattle and barking at whoever comes through the main gate entrance. But now, I think my old school Mexican parents are going to have to finally invest in a real security system instead of thinking a locked door and the porch light will scare away anybody.
So this story is going to be partly from my perspective as well as my brother's perspective. And it's going to be a long one. This is a true story that happened last night while I was at my grandmother's house. So, before this all took place, I went to get McDonald's in the nearest city to us, which is probably 20 minutes or more. After that, I decided to go down to my grandparents' house instead of going straight home. For context, she lives down a long farm road to which you also must turn off down about a half mile to get to this dirt driveway that goes to her house. I arrived there at around 9 p.m., and when I went in and visited my grandmother and my brother who lives with her ever since my grandpa passed away so that she won't have to live on her own, my brother and I took out my grandmother's dog to pee at around 10.30 p.m., and we just sat outside listening to music and talked for a bit. At that point, I was starting to get cold because this is East Texas, and I'm not yet used to it getting down into the low 40s at night, so I was ready to go inside. I noticed something moving in the corner of my eye, near the large metal shop that sits a few hundred yards away from the house, though. I didn't really think too much of it at first. I didn't even take notice, because it's not uncommon for deer or raccoons to come snooping around in the yard. And plus, my grandma's dog wasn't barking, so I thought that it might have just been my eyes playing tricks on me. We finally headed back inside, and my grandma went to sleep at around 11pm, so me and my brother stayed up playing among us and watched YouTube for a while. At around 2.30am, I was very tired and ready to go home, so I asked my brother to walk with me to the door and make sure that I get out to my car because I am always very paranoid, especially at night. He joked around and said that he would turn the light off on me and lock the door, and I freaked out and begged him to walk with me to the car, to which he finally humored me. I got in my car and immediately locked the doors, and I saw the porch lights turn off as I was driving down the dirt road. I got home within 10 minutes and fixed myself some ice cream before I sat down and enjoyed some creepy horror stories on YouTube. Another 15 or so minutes passed, and I get a FaceTime call from my brother, to which I picked up almost immediately. I could tell he was really freaked out about something, but he wasn't really saying anything right away. So I asked him what was wrong. The following is going to be my best attempt to paraphrase what my brother told me that night. He said that after I left, he went back outside to listen to some music and sit on the porch. He had the music on his phone up loud, which would usually mask any noises of animals coming from the nearby woods. After a few minutes of listening to music, he said that he heard what he thought to be the sound of metal banging around. So he quickly paused the music and listened to see if he could hear the sound again. He stood up and looked towards the shop and the boat shed, which are adjacent to each other and are a few hundred yards away from where he was standing. He saw a faint light shining around near the boat shed, but then it quickly flicked off. At this point he was freaking out, so he quietly crept back inside the house and locked the door behind him. He said that he ran to the room in the back of the house where he was staying, I guess not thinking to wake up our grandmother, and grabbed his revolver. He quickly ran back outside and saw the glow of the flashlight move around and then quickly shut off as soon as he noticed it. He walked out to the edge of the concrete carport and stared out towards the boat shed with his revolver down at his side. The only thing illuminating the boat shed was the faint light coming from the house. He said that he tried to muster up the most intimidating voice he could, and managed to say, Who the hell is out there? To which there was no immediate reply, except for a slight bumping sound, which solidified the fact that someone was indeed there. Now keep in mind, this is in the middle of the country, in a town with a population of 
barely a thousand, and the nearest house is across the lake miles down the road. So, no well-meaning person would just happen to stumble across my grandmother's house this late at night. Also, my grandmother really does have problems with people snooping around the property in the past, so this is not something any of us take lightly. And for the life of me, I can't tell you why my brother just didn't call the police, but you also must remember that there is literally no cop in our entire town. It's 3am, and so it would take at least 30 minutes for the cops to even show up from a different city. So anyway... My brother again called out for the person to show themselves and repeated this question and asked the person to identify themselves. He said that he practically craps his pants as a tall, lanky figure slowly emerged from the boat shed with a flashlight in hand. Although my brother really couldn't see any distinct features about the person, he could tell that it was an older man and that it was no one that we knew. It was especially not anyone that should be in our shed at 3 a.m. At this point... My brother raised the revolver up to the point at the man and again shouted, Who the hell are you? The man was still silent and began slowly walking towards him. My brother pulled back the hammer of the revolver and gave one last verbal warning to the man and said, I swear I will blow your head off. Now who are you and why are you here? The man quickly raised his hands up and said, Whoa, calm down, man, in a taunting voice as he continued walking towards my brother. My brother fired a single shot just above the man's head, to which he finally took that as his cue that my brother meant business. The man hurriedly took off on foot back down the driveway and my brother screamed, Next time I won't miss. My brother then quickly ran inside to wake up my grandmother, who had somehow slept through the entire commotion. She didn't seem worried enough to call the police, but of course after hearing this, all I could think was what, what were the true intentions of that man? Was he just some meth head snooping around looking to steal some tools for drug money, or were his intentions much more sinister? Another question that haunts me about this whole situation is how many times has this happened after my grandmother and brother went to bed and we just didn't know? And was he watching us from the shadows all night? Was he watching me as I walked out to my car? What would have happened if my brother had turned out the lights and locked the door before I could get to my car? I used to work on a farm next to my house when I was younger. The farmer was a man I had known most of my life, so he allowed me access to his property whenever I wanted. Me and a few friends of mine decided to pack our stuff and go camping on that property for the night. We knew better to be out there and to go very far without any sort of protection, given the creatures that would come out on the farm at night. But we were dumb kids, one older but still young enough to make unwise choices. So, my four friends and I decided there are so many of us, we would be alright just to go on ahead without bringing protection. So, off we went with our camping gear, and a dog named Junior, in tow. It's also important to note that Junior was massive and trained to be a guard dog, so having him with us made me feel a bit more at ease. We built our camp about a mile away from the house as the dusk is settling in. It was a very welcomed, chilly evening giving the scorching heat of the day. So, the oldest in our group, Don, went ahead and built us a fire to begin making our evening meal before being rambunctious kids for the rest of the evening. Finally, it was time for bed. The fire was low, but our leader decided it was best to keep the fire going while all the coyote cries were ringing out around us. I didn't personally see them as much of a threat, 
given they would probably have plenty of food this time of year, but whatever, better safe than sorry. We all shared a large tent, and I remember falling asleep peacefully to the sounds of the little yips and howls. Some time had passed after we had fallen asleep when something woke me up. I didn't really register any sounds at first, so I assumed it was my mind playing tricks on me. Then I heard something large running through the leaves around the tent. I bolted up at the same time Don did, and we both stared at each other. The running continued, and something brushed against the tent. We quickly woke the others, and that's when it started screaming. It sounded like a woman screaming in pain, but it was just so much louder than any person could possibly be. Since I was panicking, I didn't recognize where I had heard this noise before. When it hit the tent again, the dog was with us and started going insane and tried tearing out the door of the tent to get to whatever this thing was. Don tried to grab him, but by the time he got to Junior, he was already darting out of the tent. Don chased after him for a good while. When we got out of the tent, we saw not one but two mountain lions outside of our tent. Maybe it was because of the sheer number of people and the massive dog that was with us, but they ran back into the forest and Don somehow managed to grab the dog. We built up the fire again. One of us stays awake to always be on watch throughout the night though, and I can remember a couple of times after that being woken up by them screaming from the other side of the pond. At the time, to me, it felt like they wanted us to know they were there. We heard that bone-chilling screaming all through the night. I don't know if this is normal behavior or not considering there should have been plenty of food in the area for them, but it's a night I will never forget. I had never been happier to see daybreak. We immediately packed up our gear and headed out. The next time we went, we made sure we didn't go unprepared. Each year, me and one of my closest friends, Dane, go down to visit my grandparents at their cabin in a nice, small, peaceful town in the North Georgia Mountains. Me, my friend, and his grandpa are all outdoors kind of people, so we are always looking for something fun for all of us to do around the area. One night, we decided to go on a night hike on a trail not too far from the cabin. Now, this isn't the kind of trail you're probably thinking of. It really is more of a gravel dirt road, but a lot of hunters, campers, motorbikers, and backpackers use it as well. We headed out to the trail and Right as we pulled up to the trail we were going to hike on, we noticed an older, beat-up, suspicious-looking black Chevy SUV with two middle-aged men in it parked next to the entrance of the trail. Now, even though this is a rather safe area, drug deals and other kinds of sketchy activity can occur deep in these woods. So we avoided going on the trail and decided to head down to another trail about a half a mile down the road. We pulled about 50 or so feet into the trail, just outside of view from the road, parked the truck, and got out and started our hike. Our hike was off to a great start until we got about a mile in. We started to hear a dog barking from probably 300 feet away. We decided to keep going, but the dog just would not stop barking, and we didn't know if the dog was on a leash or what. The last thing we wanted was to be attacked by some random dog, so eventually we did decide to turn around and head back. When we were about, I would say, a thousand or so feet away from the truck, we could see a car sitting behind my friend's grandfather's truck, running its headlights on. 
This instantly had us a bit worried because who just rolls up behind a random truck at 10pm at night on an isolated trail? And keep in mind, you would have to have driven into the trail to see we had parked the truck. It was not visible from the road. We stood there for about 5 minutes trying to see if we could see anybody, but since it was so dark and far away it was hard to see anything at all. Fortunately for us there was a large tree next to the trail and we were able to stay behind it so there was no way they could see us from where they were parked. My friend's grandpa took these night vision binoculars we had with us to try and get a better look, but this was still not much help. We decided we would just stand there and wait for them to turn around and leave because there was no chance we were going to walk back with this random car with potential bad people in it sitting behind our truck. After about 10 minutes of just standing there, to my absolute horror, the car drove around the truck and started to head down the trail in our direction. Instantly, as fast as we could, we climbed up this hill right next to us and hid behind a log that was sitting on the top. A few seconds later, that same beat-up black Chevy SUV we saw outside the other trail we were originally supposed to hike on comes driving down where we were just standing, not even 15 seconds ago. The car had its windows rolled down and started to slow down as it drove past us. Me, my friend, and Grandpa were terrified. Our hearts were pounding out of our chest, and we were scared these guys would stop and sit there, or even worse, get out and start looking for us. Fortunately for us, though, the car just kept driving and never stopped. As soon as the car was out of sight, we got out of our hiding spot, booked it back to the truck, and got the heck out of there. I know this may not be as scary as some of the others, but it was frightening. We don't know who or what those guys wanted. My guess is they had a stash on that trail deeper in the woods and thought we stumbled upon it or something, and were out to confront us or even worse. A lot of things could have gone wrong. We could have walked up to the truck just as they pulled in, and what if they... what if they had bad intentions? What if they slashed the tires of the truck, or what if they turned their headlights off and sat there and waited for us to come back and ambush us? My friend and his grandpa went back in the daytime a few days later to that exact spot, where we were hiding and looked around. They also took a few pictures of that area as well. The first picture is where we were standing, looking at the truck and the car behind it. Off in the distance, you can see our truck parked. That's exactly where we had it parked at that same night. Just off to the left is the hill we rushed up to hide from the car. In the second picture, you can see where our hiding spot was after my friend and his grandpa went back. They said we were very lucky to have made it up there successfully, as it seemed impossible to do as fast as we did, especially with all the shrubs and thorns in the way. If we got up there, even two seconds later, we would have been seen. I can only imagine what could have happened if we didn't make it up that hill, and those guys saw us. So one thing before I tell my story, I put Wendigo in quotes because I live in Central California, in an area historically known for the Miwok people, which from what little I know about Wendigos is quite a ways from where they're normally seen. So if someone knows a similar Miwok folklore, I'd love to hear it. Anyways, here's my story. Two years ago, I and a group of three other friends decided to go to Humboldt County for a weekend. We wanted to go see Fern Canyon tour the HSU campus, and have a fun four-day weekend camping on the beach. On Sunday, it's time to come home. It was about a 12-hour drive to where I was dropping my friends off, 
which I drove the entire duration of. By the time I drop them off and start the last hour-long drive back to my house, it's a little after 9pm and completely dark out. Now, the two routes that someone can take between where my friends live and where I live cross two different bridges over a lake. I decided to take the main highway. It is a little bit longer than the other route, but has fewer turns to navigate. The difference between the two routes was only about two miles or so. As I'm about halfway to the point of the bridge, I noticed in my headlights there's something on the shoulder. I slow down a bit to make sure I'm able to move over if needed, and as I get closer, I'm able to make out what it is. Standing on the side of the road was a seven, maybe even eight foot tall bipedal humanoid creature. It looked emaciated, with ghost white skin that was stretched over, tight across its bones. Now, I obviously wasn't going to stop and get any closer to take a look at it. But when I looked in the rear view mirror to see if I could make out any further details, there was nothing there. It was as if it had completely vanished. The rest of my drive home was uneventful, and when I woke up the next morning, I brushed it off as maybe just exhaustion from that long weekend and the 12 hours of driving. Whatever this thing was though, it's still in my mind. I thought it was just a hallucination like I said, that is until Tuesday. When I was talking with one of my friends who had gone on the trip, she told me that one of her other friends had been driving on that same bridge on Monday night and had allegedly seen something very similar to what I had seen. That was when I told her about my encounter, and she suggested that it might have been a Wendigo. Before then, I maybe heard that name once or twice, but hadn't really paid much attention. I wasn't really into cryptids and ghost stories, but now I can't get enough and I need to know what they are. It was my summer break. I was 15 at the time, and my older sister was 16. My mother decided to visit my grandmother and grandfather in Mexico. We would see the small town of Libiano, which was at the time the closest to their ranch. The ranch was about 15 minutes from the city, in a little secluded and hidden area in the mountains and hills. There was little law enforcement at the time, and the people of the town decided to create their own law enforcement, which I found a little uncomforting. So we flew into Mexico City, and then took a car ride for about 3-4 to four hours to the town, and then another ride to where my mother lived. For a few days, everything was great. I would wake up early and herd the cows from a massive hill and corral them and milk them, enjoy the views and relax. I remember the exact date and time of this encounter, because I had my phone in my hand. It was a Thursday. I couldn't sleep very well, so I decided to watch some anime until I got sleepy. I had downloaded some episodes for this specific occasion. After a couple of hours of watching, I needed to use the restroom. The restroom was not inside the house but outside in a little hut, or an outhouse as some others would call it. The house had a massive tree beside it. That's where they had a little chicken corral, and the restroom was in the front of the house, but to the right of it a bit. This tree is a tall seba tree, with no branches until it reaches the canopy. It was about 3.24am, and I left the house while staring at my phone when my body froze. I was halfway to the restroom when my heart started pumping, as if I was running a triathlon. I looked up from my phone to the tree to see this, I guess what I can only describe, thing 
staring at me. It kind of looked like a person, or at least its silhouette did. I somehow came over the fear that froze me and slowly walked into the restroom. Its eyes were blank, almost like this thing was unconscious, but they felt threatening at the same time, like when a cougar was about to jump on a deer. The thing looked like it was leaning on the tree from the top branch. I quickly closed the door and hoped whatever this thing was would have left me alone. I didn't really believe in the supernatural, although cryptids did interest me at the time. I was always a heavy skeptic, so I was a dumb rational thinker. Though, I was dumb and decided to use the restroom and watch anime anyway, until a few minutes had passed and I heard a loud thump. I felt the ground shake a bit. This thing, whatever it was, had jumped from the tree to the ground and in front of the restroom. I felt trapped and I started to have a panic attack when I accidentally turned off the light in the bathroom. I held my breath and tried to calm myself down when I suddenly heard footsteps slowly getting farther away. Then, I felt a sudden urge of relief that seemingly calmed me down for a few minutes. I waited about 15 minutes to leave the restroom and go back into the house. In the morning, while we were all at the table having breakfast, I asked my mom if she had ever heard anything similar to this. She replied with a confused, no. My sister looked at me like an idiot and mocked me. I asked my grandfather if he's seen anything late at night in the trees. He told me about the lizards and the occasional raccoon, but I knew what I saw was much larger than both of those things. I explained what I saw to him, and he gave me a worried look. As soon as he got up, he muttered something I could barely hear, but I'm pretty sure he said, again? Under his breath. Later in the day, I saw him in the back of the house burning some herbs and looking around suspiciously. My grandmother set out a little statue of the Virgin Mary. Nothing else happened for the rest of the two weeks that I was there. To this day though, looking on the internet for what I saw, I just can't find an answer. I don't know what it was. I wanted to share this story with you on your show to see if anyone else has had a similar experience. This happened a few days ago, when my family decided to visit Mexico. They usually visit not only to visit my grandparents, but also to donate unwanted items from our house to the kids that are in desperate situations and need it more than we do. I don't normally go to Mexico, not because I don't want to, but because of the pets that need to be watched and such, as well as our valuables and our neighborhood is sadly now being targeted for robbings and such like that. It's gotten even worse, especially over the events of 2020 and, you know, everything that came with that. My parents would urge me to go to Mexico with them this time, though, but I kept insisting that I would stay. And boy, do I now have another reason why I never want to go back to Mexico. My uncle, who I will call Rick for privacy reasons, wanted to tag along to see his mom, as it had been over a decade since he hasn't really paid a visit to Mexico in a very long time. My stepdad gladly took him, and ahead we went. My stepdad took our truck and trailer, which was filled to the brim with bikes, clothes, and other pieces of furniture. You name it, we have it, and are willing to donate. While my mom wanted to make sure that she got there quickly, she took a plane as my three-year-old baby sister couldn't stand a four-day drive. I didn't want to go as I needed to watch the pets and stuff and our house and all that, but despite that, my mom convinced me that she would hire someone to watch the place for us. I sadly agreed and relaxed without having to worry about my pets 
and let someone do the work for me. Still, me being me, I don't really trust people to look after our stuff and all that. Especially after the stuff that happened this year and other personal events I will not really get into, but I just really don't trust anyone basically. My mom's flight was due a few days after my stepdad's initial journey from our state up north, all the way to California and then into Mexico. I let my mom prepare for her flight while also telling me what to do around the house and what to do and what not to do. All the mom things you hear when you're going to be the man of the house for a few days while they're gone. Two days went by without incident until I walked to the kitchen and spotted a cricket on the ceiling. A lot of questions popped up into my mind. First of all, how did that cricket get up there? Why is it up there? I told my mom and her reaction was not something I would expect. She urged me to kill it and without question I got the bug spray and slapped it off the ceiling with my shoe, making sure it was dead. I didn't really understand why my mom wanted me to kill it, let alone have such a shocked reaction. My mom was never really scared of bugs, so why was she suddenly so terrified about this one little cricket? Two days went by faster than I expected. My mom invited me to go out and eat and talk and go shopping and stuff and see the sights of Mexico. I agreed and went out to eat. We had a long discussion about our family, friends, etc. I remember sitting back for a moment and recognizing the cricket incident. I asked my mom if she remembered the cricket and why she had such an adverse reaction to it. What she told me next makes me regret asking, but at the same time, question my own beliefs and ideology. She told me a story about how a few years ago, she also spotted a cricket. She tried to kill it, but much to her dedication, it escaped her sight. She searched as much as she could, trying to find a thing until she had to give up and continue with her day. A few weeks would roll by, and she got a call from my grandmother, telling me that her grandpa had tragically passed away from a stroke. Let me tell you, hearing your mom cry over a family member is nothing. Nobody wants to relive. She had a theory about the crickets, telling me about how they were warning signs to something tragic, like spotting a crow or a black cat, I guess. I was skeptical because I didn't believe in that kind of stuff, but I gave her the benefit of the doubt. We continued with our day, but little did we know, this day we would take a complete 180 and just turn our lives upside down. I was upstairs playing my video games and talking to my girlfriend at the time. I told her I would be right back as I wanted to go get something to drink. I went downstairs and saw that my mom was on the phone with a panicked expression. I waited for her to end the call and asked what had happened. Apparently, while my stepdad was trying to return from his trip in Mexico, he got caught up on the US border. He was stopped by the cartel. For those who do not know, the cartel is the Mexican mafia basically and it's responsible for all the illegal drug trafficking, human smuggling, and much of the murders. When they don't get what they want from someone, they kidnap them and torture them for fun, while carving into their skin, leaving behind their signature symbols to put out some messages to people to pay their fee or be tortured and killed. My stepdad was held at gunpoint, demanded to pay a fine of $600 per person. My uncle and stepdad did not have the money, which angered the group. They told him to follow them as they were going to take them somewhere safe, quote-unquote. What my stepdad did next was something that still even surprises me. He pretended to follow them, only to make a complete 180 in their truck, speeding off the highway, almost making them crash into the now busy roads. When people went to escape from impending danger, they will do literally anything. They try to look for the earliest and easiest escape possible, 
even if it might cost them an arm or a limb. Luckily, though, they got away, but the cartel wasn't giving up there. They thankfully didn't follow, as they knew they would be caught as members in the public. Ultimately, would screw them over. They went back to the nearest police station, trying to have something done about the incident. But instead of sending police out to patrol the area, let alone escort them to a safe place, all they said was, if I were you, I wouldn't have come here to try to solve this. I later then learned that much of the cartel owned the city, and the police were pretty much just hired lackeys for the cartel at this point, and they would do whatever the cartel wanted. The cartel basically has the Mexican government at their fingertips, seeing how much they have grown and killed and done all of what they do, you could see that nobody's really working to stop them. U.S. government officials like the FBI and CIA often ask what they can do, but even quite often they are paid off. Since they're still in Mexican territory though, there's not a lot that the U.S. officials could even do if they wanted to. The cartel doesn't take failure so lightly, and they are willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. They luckily made it back into the U.S., and my family was safe though. They did get chased for quite a while, apparently, over the border, according to my uncle. We were talking about it once at dinner, and they really seemed shaken up about it, so I don't think they really, you know, I really don't think they exaggerated anything. All I know is I don't know what those people wanted from them outside of the $600. I don't know why they were so intent on trying to torture them. I feel like even if they gave them the 600 they probably would have been chased down cut up, or whatever anyway. Thank you for sharing my story. I know it might have been a bit jumbled, but I just wanted to get this off my chest. This story is true. I have five people who can vouch for me, since they experienced it themselves. We were in a youth group together, and loved to do missionary work, so we would do mission trips together. We had gone to Mexico twice before, and our youth pastor had asked us if we wanted to go help another church down in Mexico. He told us that we would be spending three nights there. We all said yes, we would love to, and we got ready to do an overnight trip. When we got to the church, it was huge. We later found out that it was made in 1895 and was one of the more popular churches in the area. It can sit about a thousand people or so. When we showed up, we were really taken aback from the sheer size of it. The thing even had a tower. So, when we walked in with our bags, one of the church members came over to us and had told us that all of the rooms, they had been full. So, we would be sleeping in the hallway. We said, all right, and set up our makeshift beds and our little areas. The first day of us doing work around the church, we all noticed that they had bars on all the windows. One of us asked why they had that and they told us it used to be an asylum for some time. I would be lying if I said that this didn't freak us out just a little bit. Later that night, the five of us stayed up late and watched some YouTube videos and movies. Everyone was asleep before 11pm that night, and I was slowly getting ready to fall asleep myself. Suddenly, I heard someone walking around. I figured that it was one of the staff members and didn't think anything of it, initially. What changed my mind, though, is that the footsteps kept going on for about an hour. I honestly started to get mad. I was already tired and worn out from the day of traveling. So, I got up and looked around. I peeked around the corner, and the footsteps abruptly stopped, and all the sound that they made was gone in an instant. 
This would happen two more times that night. Apparently, one of my friends even got up and the exact same thing happened to him. On the second night, we had some middle schoolers come out to the church. A few of them had run off and me and my friends were tasked to go get them so we could all lead as a group. The group of kids had gone towards the front entrance. There were only two ways you could go to get there though. One was to come back the way we were walking and the other was up this set of stairs. We saw them run up the stairs and we followed them up. Since there were three of us, we decided to block them off. Two of us would block their escape by the stairs and one of us would go up. When we went up, we eventually caught them, but one of the kids was still missing. There was a ladder that went up the tower and we thought that the kid maybe went up there. So me and my friend Eric went up to check it out. We couldn't see any sign of the kid, so we eventually assumed the kid just went back and got food. When we got out of the tower, we heard three loud bangs come from behind us. Eric and I looked at each other and said, no, we're getting the heck out of here, and we got back to the group and ate our food. That night, when I tried to sleep, we heard those footsteps again. Almost the entire night we would hear them echoing around us. We put earbuds in so we could sleep at least. That last day was absolutely terrible. A middle schooler was having a fight with his mom and ran off. Once again, we were tasked with finding them. According to the staff, he had run off toward the basement. While down there, we saw the door to where they would hold people from, the asylum back in the day. There were so many rooms that the five of us agreed to split up and search, and that one of us would stay and wait. Eric said that he would stay and wait, so James, Olivia, Nathan, and myself all went in and started to check the rooms one by one. Slowly, going down through the hallway, if I remember right, it was probably the third hallway we checked, and we opened the first door. We saw that they were storing items in there. Of course, I was holding open the door, and James took off running with Olivia, right behind him. At first, Nathan and I didn't think anything of it, and thought they were just playing around. Nathan and I turned around, and saw a shadow figure standing there right behind us. We collectively let out a series of curse words. Nathan was a better runner than I was, so he reached the door first. As the door opened outward and was closing faster than it should have, I let out a hell no and kicked the thing open. Afterwards, I yelled at my friends for leaving me behind and letting the door almost shut on me, because it's the type of door that locks from the inside and can only be opened from the other side, so that is why I was so angry with them. Anyway, that was my story from my time working as a missionary in Mexico. The country is a beautiful and serene place with rich history and wonderful people. I would highly recommend anyone who has the chance to visit the country do it at least once in their lifetime. Maybe you will experience some of the supernatural energy that I did. I never thought I'd have anything too juicy to share until a few nights ago that I sat down in my room and was listening to some scary stories on Swamp Dweller's channel. First of all, I'm Mexican, but came to the US when I was just a toddler. My mom herself had fully experienced growing up in Mexico, specifically in our rural hometown, about two hours away from any major city. I'm just finding the time to share about this now, but a few nights ago, me and my mom struck up a conversation about her silly times in Mexico as a young girl and her living on a ranch with her siblings and parents. It didn't get too exciting 
until I asked her what the nights were like. That's when she shared some interesting experiences. It completely blew my mind that the idea never struck me that my mom grew up in an area prone to weird or paranormal experiences. I was in awe, hearing all of it for the first time, especially since I'm incredibly interested in these sort of things. She began by saying that the nights were dark, sad, and sometimes scary. Why scary? I asked. She told me that a lot of the times, the dogs would act up and bark at night, growling at things that just weren't there. She felt an ominous presence from time to time, or like she was being watched. From here on out, she shared a few separate stories. She told me that she would occasionally see different colored lights in the sky, dance and move in different directions at high speeds, some over the hills of her hometown or ranch, or others high up in the sky. She described the most impressive one she has ever seen. She said it was like a bright ball that would disperse into all directions, into different lights that came together again in a sort of dance. Keep in mind, these sightings would go all the way back to the 80s and early 90s, as my mom was born in 1976. Following this small summary of sightings she had seen, she recalled that about a month back, she was speaking to her sister on the phone, who still lives in that hometown to this day. She told my mom about a chilling experience she had about six months back from now. I'll try to describe it as best as I can. According to my mom's sister, she and her husband had decided to go on a late night fishing trip. Don't ask me, these people are used to living in this area. The destination was at a far off area where there was a river located on a sort of hill, only accessible by walking. At the edge of this said hill was a not so steep, long slope going down that was covered in many rocks that would be much too difficult to traverse at night. Approaching the end of this slope, there is apparently a shrouded off little lake. Their view was mainly the rolling hills lit up by moonlight. At one point during their little stay on this hill, they began to smell a very strong odor that they can only describe as iron, rusted iron, or something close to that. It was just a very strong odor, she described it as. The next thing they know, they see a red light or orb located where the shroud of the lake should be. They describe that this thing was moving slowly, or hovering around. They couldn't see exactly what it was because of the shrubs. As they stared at this strange red light at the bottom of the slope, she said that she could only describe it as the brightest light she had ever seen. It appeared before them, and it jumped up into the sky, a light so bright that it lit up an enormous amount of the surrounding area. It was a very wide and circular light that was shining down on the ground from a source in the sky. She said she could only make out a strange round object surrounding this light. Basically, your typical saucer shape, but very large. It was apparently above where the red object was located. For the entire time that they were distracted by this, they failed to notice that the red light was moving in their direction, at a steady pace, and at that point, it was making its way up the slope. She said that when they saw it that close, they basically sprinted out of there without looking back, engulfed entirely by fear. Hearing this story for the first time completely gave me goosebumps. My mom's sister and her husband didn't share this with anyone but a few people out of fear of being ridiculed. Personally, I think it's an incredible story, not just because of the scale of the encounter, but also because it makes you realize how much encounters like these could be slipping past us. It was chilling to hear about.
These next few encounters are more of like paranormal phenomenon, and I think you might find these just as interesting. Towards the end of our conversation, she recalled that sometime before we came to the US, her mom was incredibly sick. So sick that all she could do was lay down, close her eyes, and have epileptic symptoms. She told me her father would constantly yell at her to not die. One night, while her and the family were caressing her and grieving, they witnessed a strange, luminescent ball of light arrive from nowhere into their home, right before their eyes. She said that when this light reached her grandmother, it dispersed and she immediately woke up with all of her sick symptoms gone, with no explanation as to what had just happened. My mom added to this by saying that there was a little rumor that someone might have used witchcraft on my grandmother, but she doesn't know if that had been true or not. My mind was blown when I heard this one. I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like it before. Her last story before we wrapped it up comes from her father and the stories he would tell her. My grandfather apparently had a lot of stories, but this is the only one she could remember at that moment. When he was a younger guy, living in a much more spread about rural area, there would be these flames or fires seen in the distance. These fires would seemingly appear out of nowhere and disappear when he tried to get to their location. On one specific night, on his way home, he saw what looked like his house engulfed by flames. In total fear and distress he ran there, and as he approached the area and finally arrived, all was completely normal and still intact. I'd like to add more to this one, but she said that was about the extent of what she remembers being told. It's odd, eerie, and short. I suppose that's all I have to share. I'll have to see if she remembers anything else another time. I hope these stories are insightful in one aspect or another, because they really were for me. First, I would like to start by saying that I'm not a professional writer by any means, but have always been attracted by everything paranormal. I wasn't always the bravest person as a kid, but I liked all the paranormal stuff even still. I've experienced many things throughout my life, some things that seem like they're from a movie or a book. This time I'll be telling you more of a mild and not so strange thing that happened to me while I was walking home one night in Mexico. Before our start, I'll give you a little bit of background so you better understand my story. I was born and raised in a small town in Mexico. Everyone knew everyone, even though we all had cars, we all mostly walked everywhere. There was crime, but it was very rare, and nothing really violent ever happened. I'm the youngest of five, and my parents were rarely ever home. This meant I was able to stay up late and go pretty much everywhere, whenever I wanted. My hometown is in sort of a valley, with most of the town on one side of these tall hills. My house was located in a block at the foot of the steepest hill, with my street directly perpendicular to the two main streets leading up to it. One of these streets was a bit more of a main road. It was mostly used to lead to the hill, which was used for religious traditions and such. Anyway, this main road was mostly populated by my family with my grandmother on my dad's side and my mom's side both living on this road near the hill. Her house itself was small, but the plot was big and my aunt's house is scattered around it. This was still quite a long walk from my street, roughly about five minutes of walking or so. My family was a very typical Mexican family and would gather at her house pretty much every single night. 
On one night, I ended up staying way past my usual time with my cousins. By the time I started heading home, it was well past midnight. There were streetlights, but they were very spaced out along the streets, which were blocked off by a bunch of trees to begin with. It was creepy, definitely for a kid as well, but the moon was out and helped ease my nerves just a bit. I began walking downhill towards the house. The entire time I kept feeling weird, like I was being followed and watched. I didn't necessarily feel like I was in danger, but I felt incredibly uneasy. The entire walk my heart felt like it was in my throat and I felt like at any moment I would just sprint running from my life. I kept walking down the street having to look back over my shoulder every so often. I eventually reached the corner and turned toward my house. Now on my street, there has been a house that's been abandoned for a very long time. It always gave me the creeps and it was the third house from the corner. I was just about to walk by it. Every time I walked by, I would always walk on the opposite side of the street, which didn't have anything, not even a sidewalk. I would have to walk through the same path that night, but this time it was blocked off by these huge piles of sand and dirt, probably some kind of construction work nearby. That combined with a huge delivery truck parked on the curb belonging to my neighbors forced me to walk in the middle of the street. As I approached the house, I had to mentally prepare myself and give myself courage to walk in front of it. My heart began racing. I was always scared of that house, but for some reason, this night just seemed worse somehow. I forced myself to keep walking, and as I did, I heard someone call me from the direction of the house. I froze in that instant. My heart jumped into my mouth and turned to look, and I didn't see anything or anyone. I felt a huge wave of relief wash over me. I began breathing again as I had been apparently holding my breath. I was about to start walking again when I heard the voice again this time. I turned to look at a young boy. He looked to be about my age, maybe a little bit younger. It struck me as odd before I really freaked out or anything to see a kid my age standing right next to me in that house. I didn't think twice about the fact that I could see him perfectly, even though he was standing in the dark no lights coming from an abandoned house, and even a tree blocking the moon and streetlight. He kept standing there, unmoving for a few moments, not saying a word, just kind of staring into my soul. The whole time, I was trying to process what was going on. He spoke again, asking me to go with him, saying that we could go play together. I kept trying to speak, but I just couldn't seem to form words. It felt like hours went by. The whole time, I was frozen in place, just staring at this kid, my racing mind had now realized that he was glowing. I began to tremble the entire time. I kept trying to move, but I could not. I couldn't scream. I couldn't run. I couldn't do anything. That kid just stood there, staring back at me, not moving a muscle. He spoke one more time before walking a few steps closer to me. He seemed to pass like a shadow. As he walked, his figure would turn dark and then bright again. As this happened, he called my name my full name, and then I realized he looked like me now. This shook me to my core. I jerked back at the sight of this and was finally able to break free from this trance. It was like this thing was me, but the eyes were wrong. They looked like they were full of hatred. I regained control of myself. I screamed no at whatever this was and ran faster than I ever had before. I still have no idea what that thing was. I don't know if it was a doppelganger, a demon, or what. It didn't seem to follow me and I never saw it again after that. It still scares me to think back to that day. People ask all the time to try and figure out what it was that they saw, but honestly, I kind of don't want to know.
Anyway, if you decide to share this on your channel, thank you very much for your time. So this happened last November or December. I can't exactly remember now because it was a long time ago. Now, I was visiting a childhood friend I grew up with, and we decided to go chill over at his friend's house, which was two houses down the row. We decided we wanted to go to the shop and get some snacks to eat while watching movies at his friend's house. Now, the shop is about a two-minute walk, so it's at the end of the road, really. So... As you come out of the front garden and yard area, you will see a long road to your left. For some reason, there were at least 10 people launching fireworks at someone's house. The reason as to why the house had fireworks shot at it was because they were deemed snitches, apparently. To your right, there is a way to the shop. Just bear in mind, it is a rough neighborhood, so calling the police for help is like asking for unwanted attention. We reached the shop and got some chocolates, crisps, sandwiches, and your average Insomniac's favorite drink, a Monster Energy. As we made our way back to the house to watch movies, it had gotten a bit darker. Over here in the Northwest, it gets dark pretty quick in the winter season. We noticed that more people had gathered up in the darkness, taking advantage of the neighborhood being underlit and the neighbors being afraid of them. They were still shooting fireworks at the house, but we noticed some of them were staring at us so we rushed ourselves across the road and back to the house. Everything was seemingly fine for a few hours. You could still hear the fireworks going off and the gang of teenagers laughing and shouting. This was all happening while we were watching Terminator Dark Fate, and after we watched the movie, we had decided to finish off the night with a few games of Among Us on our phones. We called it a night after that and got ready to make my way home. When the time came for me having to go home, the streets were rather foggy and stunk of gunpowder from all the fireworks they were launching earlier. My friend rushed back inside. His home was on the opposite end of the street to the gang. Bear in mind, some of these lads are like 15 and probably all mixed ages from there. Some of these people are just kids carrying blades. As I was walking up near my friend's house with my back to the gang, I had not realized that the gang had started making their way up the road in my direction. So, this may sound a little confusing, but in the UK, outside some houses, we have this kind of waterproof metal breaker box. These are a part of the neighborhood grid, and most people sit on them like benches. There's one outside the fence of my friend's front garden, and there were four or five girls sat on it, all staring in my direction. Me not being much of a social person just kind of glared at them out of confusion, and they started running away. At first, I thought I scared them or something, because I'm six foot four with a big coat and a green military bag on. Sadly, it wasn't me that scared them, because a few moments later, a firework comes flying up the road and explodes on the ground not far from the girls. They ran towards the shop, and I turned and looked behind me, utterly crapping myself to see one of the many gang members stood in the middle of the road in his thick coat with winter fur around it. When using a bottle rocket firework, you can hold it in your hand and aim it toward a target. These lads were laughing, and then he points the stick in my direction, and one flew past my head. I ran into my friend's garden, and one of the shots landed on the ground near the garden. The following shot landed next to me, and it was about to explode, 
so I kind of had to launch myself across the garden to get away from it before the flames caught me and set me ablaze. Once the shooter ran out of shots, he slowly backed down the road and ran away. In a blind adrenaline rage, I started screaming angry profanities over what had just happened. My friend's mother asked who was shouting, and I said it was me and I explained that those idiots are launching fireworks at me. About that time, the gang slowly started making their way up the road again. My friend's neighbor had luckily given me a lift home, and my friend called me and said that they had all come up to the end of the street looking for, presumably, me. Luckily, I wasn't there anymore, because I think they were going to hurt me. I got away relatively unscathed, because most people end up in the hospital. Once I was working at a hospital in Arkansas during the swing shift, it was about an hour drive from my home in Oklahoma Hills. I had a slick, step-side pickup truck, and my family needed to borrow it for some time to move some stuff. They didn't get back with my pickup when I got off. Instead, they left a Mercury Monterey car. It was basically a friggin' ugly boat to drive home. It was huge. I wasn't happy, but I had to get home somehow. It had a monster motor in it, and it would go fast. But still, I hated it, and I cussed and grumbled. About 20 miles down the road, rocking about 75 to 80 miles per hour, my hair got jerked. Not a little, but like a real tug. So I whipped off the road, and fisted my gun, and jumped to search the back seat immediately, expecting to catch someone hiding there. There was no one. I cursed the car, and the owner, and everyone I was angry with at the moment, and floored it away. I got another 20 miles over a curve too, and then the lights suddenly go off. Holy crap. I pulled off the road and they came back on. So I cussed at the stupid car and took off again, thinking this might be some electrical problem. Then, my hair got violently yanked, pulling my head back until I couldn't even see the road anymore. I pulled over and stopped, checked the back seat, the headrest, everything. This ramped up my temper even more. I was on this isolated stretch of road. There were no cell phones back then. I had to get home. It's midnight, and I was not happy. I take off again, and the heater went off. Then the lights started flashing off and on. Every so often, I had to pull off the road again, and then every time I would pull off the road, they would come back on, and everything would be normal. I am not mechanically inclined, so I am thinking it's a short somewhere, maybe the alternator. I told the car it was a defective piece of metal, and was determined to get home. Then... It felt like something was kicking the back of my seat. Not a subtle nudge, but like a full-on force kick. Then my bag went flying out from the passenger seat onto the floorboard. The radio went on, changing channels and going haywire. The lights went on and off. The seat tried to literally buck me like a bull. It started blowing freezing cold air. I made a quick turn off onto a dirt road and stopped at the first creek I came to. I pulled off the road and into the embankment. I got my bag and my angry butt left. It was winter, it was cold, and it was late, but I was not going to spend another moment in that car. The next day they brought my truck home and wanted the car. I told them where to find the car and where they could put it. I don't know about any haunted cars or anything else paranormal, but this is a true story from 1976. I did tell one lie though. The car didn't commit suicide. I pushed it into the creek with the tractor and set it on fire.
Hello everyone, this is a story of my mom and how she died. This may differ as it was only scary to me because I didn't really know what happened. If you're a parent listening to this and have had any suicidal thoughts, please seek professional help because my mom's death has messed me up for the rest of my life. Anyways, on to the story. For some context, my mom had been dealing with drug addiction for well over a decade at this point. Her and my dad had me in 2004, but shortly divorced after about two years. So, it was just us and the occasional boyfriend. I tended to wander off and explore the neighborhood when she passed out drunk or whatever else, which ended up getting me grounded very often. Eventually, it got so bad that she eventually gave my grandma, her mom, joint custody of me. I was six years old at the time. It was January 7th, 2012 that things really took a turn for the worst. I had gone to visit her for the weekend. We were late because my grandma was finishing up work. The first red flag that something bad had happened was that her boyfriend answered the door. She was always the person to answer the door. He told us that she was napping and would be up soon. It was 3 p.m. 5 p.m. rolled around and I ended up making the biggest mistake of my life. I went into her room. And there, I saw her body. The gun was on her chest. I stupidly didn't question it because I didn't know what death was. I left the room and continued waiting in the living room. 6.45 rolled around and her boyfriend checked on her. The next thing I saw was him bolting out of the room and bolting outside. The police showed up 15 minutes later and so did my family. I was heavily questioned by the detective about how I saw her. I was taken out of the house and to my family who were crying. I was told that she was dead. It set in that something bad happened not long after and I ended up going into shock. I started living with my grandma full time at that point. I saw therapy and just kind of accepted that she was dead. To tell a seven year old that they would never see their mom again is probably the hardest thing you could do. So please if you have kids and are struggling mentally, think of how it could affect them. Because I'm now a stoner and can't have a stable romantic relationship because my mental state was destroyed so badly from this. You are not alone. There will always be people who will listen to you. And to anybody in the swamp who needs any help, please feel free to reach out or even check out some of the sponsors on this channel at Talkspace.com. You can use code SWAMPED to save $100 off your first month. In the mid-80s, I was a college student in the Mountain West. I was not a recreation major, but nevertheless, I made a point of scheduling an outdoor education class every other semester or so. The classes were a great diversion and usually resulted in an easy A to pad the grade point average. Consequently, over the course of my college years I had squeezed in recreation credits for kayaking, windsurfing, scuba diving, and primitive archery. I thoroughly enjoyed all of those classes, and I honestly believe they had made me a better student overall. It was always refreshing to step out of the academic grind for a few hours. For one winter semester, I enrolled in a wilderness survival course. The class met once per week during the term and then culminated in a practical final exam. The final was basically a three-day outing in which the students used the course material while camping and hiking through a section of, of southeast Utah. The class was about 60 students, along with about a dozen or so staff. So we took two buses to the drop-off area. The site was about an hour or so from the campus. Far out in the desert amid the junipers, sagebrush, and creosote bushes. 
It looked like a rangeland to me, and there was ample evidence of stock trails and cow pies and all kinds of things. To be honest, I can't recall our location exactly. I think we were around Bryce Canyon National Park, but I know for a fact that we were outside park boundaries because our coursework involved a lot of activities that are forbidden on protected lands, such as harvesting plants, digging in the earth, and building shelters, and burning fire pits. It was winter, but we were far enough south that the daytime temperatures were mild, even pleasant. The skies were clear, and we were predicted to stay that way. The only real weather concern would be the high desert nights when temperatures were certain to drop well below freezing. As we deboarded the buses, the director rallied everyone into a big group and gave us our final field instructions. He made a big deal about the experience being a realistic survival experience. To that end, we would have limited food, limited water, and limited equipment. Our success in the venture and our course grade would depend on how well we utilized our classroom training and meeting our survival needs. Every student had been told to bring the following. A pocket knife, a rolled wool blanket, six feet of cord, a coat, a hat, underwear, one shirt, one pair of pants, and one pair of socks. It wasn't so much a specific survival situation or simulation as it was just an exercise in making the most of minimal gear which one might face whenever they are in an unknown emergency. Following our short meeting, the director and the staff did a contraband search, going so far as to search everyone's bedroll and even their pants pockets. This all seemed a bit ridiculous and a bit insulting to me. Why would anyone, or any adult I should say, sign up for a wilderness survival experience only to sabotage their own education by sneaking in matches or snacks. Yet, they did. I had to laugh at the number of cigarette lighters that were uncovered. There was also a smattering of gloves and extra socks. There were plenty of illicit snacks. One guy even attempted to smuggle a jumbo size of potato chips. It made an embarrassing crunch when a staffer squeezed his bedroll. After all these years, the memory of the contraband search still astonishes me. We started the trip with a two-hour hike into the desert. I suppose we were probably about 15 miles away from any paved road. Apart from the noises of the group, the only sound was the wind and the occasional bird call. It was arid and scrubby, but still very peaceful and beautiful. The plants were mostly dormant in the winter, but there was plenty of life in the desert still. Our first camp was in a broad, shallow valley, down among a grove of cedars. It had been used before and was obviously a bit of a sacrifice area. Several of the trees were missing strips of outer bark, and much of the deadfall firewood had already been gathered up from the forest floor. Still, it looked at least as good as any campsite you might see in Yellowstone or Yosemite. A dirt road had allowed the staff to drive a four-wheel drive support vehicle right into the camp. Our first task was to execute a shelter and bed for the night. In addition, we were required to produce two feet of natural fire cordage and start one fire for every team of four people. The results were widely mixed. Some teams completed their task quickly, while others struggled and even failed. More than one group was unable to get a fire going and had to ultimately rely on staff help. One team set their camp in the bottom of a clear path of a past flash flood. Several individuals were unable to make usable cordage despite having practiced that skill in one of the prior classroom sessions. The staff were kept busy by checking off tasks and providing any advice and help as needed. Not to brag, but wilderness survival was nothing new to me. 
I'd always been an outdoors kid and had probably logged around 400 days of traveling outdoors as a kid and probably throughout my life. Due to an odd number of students in the group, I was paired with just one other student, who was also very capable in the course material. We just coasted through the afternoon and enjoyed the equivalent of a nice campout. We found a great natural shelter and found friction fire burning within minutes. We also made about 30 feet of excellent cordage of two different kinds. There was no dinner that night, and water was rationed in coffee cans for each group. I'm sure the poor guy was missing his potato chips by then. My partner and I were punished for our competence by being tasked with tending the safety fire, basically. So, this meant that we were going to be maintaining a fire throughout the night for the entire group, which could have been used to warm up any freezing campers if they got cold in the night. It was a lot of extra work gathering wood, and it would also mean that we would have to wake up several times throughout the night to tend the coals. Oh well. It was good practice, and it was kind of flattering to be trusted with a staff job. The night was bitter cold, and the wind rose to about 20 miles an hour. Without a flashlight, it was impossible to see any of the surrounding campers. We felt obligated to keep at least a small open flame so anyone in distress could find the safety in the dark. Fortunately, the cow dung made durable coals, and we also managed to find a large stump which burned for several hours. In the early morning, we could see the other students huddling together in their thin blankets. Most of them had figured out the benefit of the shared body heat technique. Who knows, maybe a few lasting romances were formed that night. Staff gathered by the safety fire with several large bird cages. They demonstrated how to field dress a chicken, without using a knife, and then each group of four got a large, live bird. The rationale was that a chicken is much like many of the ground birds that would be found in nature. Turkey, grouse, sage hen, pheasant, etc. It wasn't long before everyone had a pot of boiling bird. Hunger made most of the campers less than squeamish about dispatching a live creature. And to be honest, it was all handled respectively and relatively humanely. Not a drop of broth was wasted, and every liver, gizzard, heart, and even unlaid egg was eaten. After eating, we had another day of hiking. The hike was interspersed with brief testing sessions in which students were tested on direction finding, water purification, natural containers, etc. We had some great presentations by the staff, too. I used several of the brakes to work on some cedar bark sandals I was making. Camp was in a similar site that night, the difference being the presence of a windmill and a stock watering bank. We had been dry most of the day, but the mossy water was very welcome. Smarter campers braved the cold and took a spit bath to wash away the dirt and sweat from the long day. That night, the entire group shared an entire sheep carcass. The staff provided stone blades for several of the students to cut the tendons and meat. Along with coal-roasted potatoes, everyone ate well again that night. We were tasked with par-fletching a portion of meat to carry for the day. We did this by roasting the meat and then wrapping it in bark. We slept better that night, but my partner and I still had to wake several times to tend to the safety fire. It seemed easier the second time. In the morning, smarter campers ate a few roasted potatoes which they had hoarded from the previous night. We all hydrated at the stock tanks and then hit the trail for the final hike. On this day, we encountered the massive sandstone canyons of the federal lands. We climbed a steep canyon wall and walked through miles of sweeping waves of withered rocks. The lower gullies were scattered with maquis marbles. Strangely, 
little perfect spheres of iron oxide, which formed deep in the sedimentary layers. They are sometimes called shaman stones. At midday, we stopped at a point where water ran through a clear stream. We all drank, then gathered for the last meeting. The director informed us that the last leg of the hike was a five-mile run. He described that the path was unmistakable, an unforked dirt road that would take us to the pickup site. The director made it clear that running was not mandatory, but did say that anyone taking much longer than an hour would see it reflected in their grade. And, as with any group of young adults, feats of comparative toughness always fuel competition. I knew I wasn't the fastest, but I also knew I would certainly make that time limit. I decided to cover the distance in my now-completed cedar sandals. They were scratchy and rough, and the dog's bane halters were narrow and abrasive, but if I wore them with my socks, they were comfortable. It was a great feeling of accomplishment to cover that five miles with my homemade footwear. Here's where the story truly gets weird and downright creepy. Upon arriving at the pickup site, we found we were a few hours ahead of the buses. We had two hours to kill. The weather was cool and fine, and the sun was nice and bright. Several of the guys settled in for naps. A few others hiked up the road to see the view. I crossed a rickety footbridge and walked along a stream bed. I noticed a small section of rusty pipes welded on the top of another pipe. They stuck out of the ground, just a few feet off the rough little trail. The pipe was welded at an odd angle and kind of looked like a telescope pointed to the sky. On a whim, I ducked down and peeped my eye through the pipe. I almost missed it. Indeed, the pipe was a sighting device aimed at a nearby canyon wall. Even with the pipe, I could barely notice the ancient stone granary perched under the overhang about 60 feet up the rock wall. The perfectly matched stones were mortared into a large hollow cylinder which served as a grain storage for the indigenous inhabitants hundreds of years earlier. Briefly, it was invisible. I would have walked by it a thousand times and never seen it. The ancient wonder of the Puebloan engineering was a perfect fit for its surroundings. I had known that Native Americans had stored grains and seeds and stuff in this manner, but I had never seen it in person. I later read that some granaries were so dry and protected that they still held seeds and grains hundreds of years later. I was impressed and humbled by this example of native construction. I wandered around and found a quiet place by the stream bed. I found a perfect little patch of duff and laid down to relax and soak up the sun. I knew I would hear the buses when they arrived, so I could relax about that. I was well tired from the three-day adventure. I had just trotted five miles in homemade sandals. I was full of mutton, potato, and a hostess fruit pie, which they had given us at the trail's end. I was feeling as good as I had ever felt. That's when time slipped. In an instant, I saw a perfect image of the little stream valley. It was no longer choked with willows and alder, but was perfectly level with groomed soil. I could see row after row of bright green corn stalks with ears of corn. It struck me that they were mature, with fruit, but only about five feet tall, much shorter than the modern corn. I could see the water from the creek flowing in an amazing little feeder ditch, distributing water to every row of corn. The valley was level with deep soil. It became clear to me in an instant that it was flooded plain left by an ancient beaver dam, filled with silt and leveled by centuries of standing water, and century of successive beaver dams. Down the little valley, I saw more patties beyond, most with corn, 
but others with vines of some sort, all with feeder ditches, most of them empty. All the ditches had been worked by a skilled irrigator, some ancient farmer who evidently loved that little piece of land. I can't explain how clear it was. I can't explain how it didn't require me to think or imagine. It was just instantly clear. I wondered if I was drowsing, but I wasn't. I was wide awake. I could hear other students horsing around up by the main road. I could see the sun and feel the breeze. While it was happening, I could move my head to look around. As it was happening, I already had the impression that it was temporary and ephemeral. I, I tried to hang on to it, but it changed back as quickly as it had come about. I tried to estimate how long it lasted, and it seemed like maybe 15 seconds. When it was over, I left with a strange mix of satisfaction and longing. It was miraculous and amazing to witness, but I wanted to look longer. I was left feeling deeply touched and humbled, but at the same time, absolutely terrified. Since that day so many years ago, I have often wondered if it was just a dream, or if I had fallen into some sort of time slip, or what. But I remain confident that it wasn't some sort of dream. Sure, I was tired. Maybe I was a bit sleep-deprived or undernourished, but it almost seems more plausible that it was a face to my own ego. I was proudly calm and at peace, and my mind was extraordinarily open. I somehow got beyond my present dimension. To the best of my knowledge, I had never read or heard of anything about Pueblan culture. I am confident that I was not processing some previous memory. In fact, I think it's safe to say that I had a general disinterest and disrespect for indigenous culture at the time. I was a product of the 60s and 70s after all. Since then, I have made a point to find out more of the early Americans. I have always gratified that my impressions of that day seem to mesh perfectly with the genuine anthropological data. At this point, I accept that I might never understand this experience, but I'm glad I experienced it. That moment remains an indescribable treasure to me. The reason why I say it made me feel a bit terrified, though, is because if this was a time slip or some sort of dimension, why was I able to see it and nobody else was? And what would have happened if I actually wandered into it, per se? I used to work at my ex-father-in-law's office, which was a large, two-story historical building, a little over a hundred years old. I worked there off and on for about 15 years. During that time, my co-workers and I witnessed numerous strange events that baffle me to this day, ranging from benign footsteps to items being flung around. Often, I would take a lunch break, so I would stay at the office while the others left first. One day, I heard the microwave door open in the kitchen, which was adjacent to the waiting room. This was a newer stainless steel microwave with a handle, so you must pull it to open it. I got up and shut it and sat back down at my desk. About ten minutes later, the microwave door opened again. I got up, closed it, and sat back down. This happened at least three different times within the lunch hour. I didn't feel afraid, and honestly, I didn't really think much about it. My strangest encounter was the day my ex-sister-in-law with her two kids were visiting. I was talking to them in the waiting room, and they were all sitting in chairs. Like I said, the waiting room sits right next to the opened kitchen door. Suddenly, the kitchen light came on at the exact same time, and two paintings in the waiting room fell to the ground. We were all stunned, but not necessarily afraid. We also had this very old-school time stamp machine that was about as heavy as a brick, 
used to build houses and such. It was slightly smaller in dimensions, although a little squarer. My co-workers and I lost count of this thing more times than I can count. Even though it was always hanging from a wall or something near an outlet, it would always be missing and sometimes even be thrown to the ground by itself. We would often hear a crash and there it would be, on the floor. At one point, the timestamp machine was in my co-worker's office, sitting behind her on a table, and it would fall into the ground while she was sitting on her desk. She finally moved it to the kitchen area, and it would continue crashing to the ground periodically when no one was occupying the room. Sometimes, when we arrived to work that morning, it would just be on the floor, even though we left it in a drawer the day before. It was very weird, but we always just kind of joked that our resident ghost was just up to its tricks. The only time I felt truly unsettled was when I was hanging out in my ex-father-in-law's office after hours, trying to fix his computer. It was winter, so it was dark outside, and I was the only person in the office, so it was very quiet. I could hear footsteps upstairs and the doors opening and shutting in a regular fashion. No slamming or anything like that. At one point, it sounded like a box was being dragged around, and that was when I decided to go check on the woman upstairs to see if I could find the source. I checked all the rooms, and there wasn't a soul there. No one had apparently been here yet. We often had footsteps and doors shutting, but this time it freaked me out so much that I refused to stay there alone after when it was dark. My ex-husband didn't really experience anything strange and usually just brushed it off as our stories and us kind of going crazy, I guess. I guess his thought was that it was all in our heads. He finally became a believer one evening when he was working in his office after hours. There was a very large mirror that sat on the mantle of an old fireplace in his office. He said while he was sitting in his desk, which faced the fireplace and mantle, the mirror came crashing down to the floor and shattered, making a big mess. I saw the mirror the next day and it was completely busted. A few years after my divorce, my ex-husband passed away from an acute illness at the age of 38. About a year after his death, I visited the office to catch up with my old co-workers and ex-brother-in-law who was still there. I asked the old co-workers if the ghost was still up to its tricks. They laughed and said, of course. It's just so strange, and to this day I cannot explain it. I have never really believed in spirits. I'm not completely ruling them out, though, and since I think there could be something beyond our understanding, I'm open-minded to what it would have been. Maybe somebody in the comments can help me understand better. For context, I've lived most of my life bouncing between Pennsylvania's Corn Ocean area and the popular mountain tourist destinations to the northeast. Those who have lived or visited those general areas may be aware well of the peculiarities of Pennsylvania roads. Firstly, that they are horribly managed, and secondly, these roads see a lot of death. Roadkill is a problem just about anywhere with motorists but I hardly go a single day without seeing mangled deer carcasses. Most deer here are pretty and well-mannered, which is probably why it's particularly disturbing to see fawns with crushed skulls or does with their entrails dragged upwards of 10 yards down the highway. However, wildlife gore isn't the specific sort of death I was obsessed with growing up. My thing was looking out the window and finding crosses, 
Markers left for those killed on or near the road, typically from car accidents. There's one not far from me that has the word Jessica written in a bubble font on magenta painted wood. Hers has been there as far back as I can remember. I'm in my early 20s now, but someone still tends to it and occasionally brings flowers and places photos around it. Honestly, I've always found it heartwarming that Jessica is loved, even now. Many crosses I've come to expect on my daily routes have become worn, knocked over, and just generally abandoned. I realize there probably isn't anyone left to take care of them, but it is still sad to know that these crosses that symbolize someone else's loved one are now lost, decay, and rot. Disheartening, as that is, at least I can mentally distance myself from it. If you pushed it far away, it's easy to pretend that death is not part of living. Although, I was rather abruptly forced to acknowledge it a few times in my childhood. Once, on a dark summer night, a family friend was driving me back to my mom's following a long road trip we had taken. It's about a two-hour ride, and being an annoying 12-year-old, I didn't even try to sleep, which meant I was looking out the window, watching the tree line along the highway. We soon came upon a blocked lane in the flashing lights of an ambulance and police. I watched, sort of shocked, as a person that had a sheet drawn over them was hauled into the back of an ambulance. The adult driving quickly assured me that the man was going to be just fine, and that that was the end of the discussion. I'm feeling pretty sure that that was my first dead person experience outside of a funeral. Despite the distance and the reassurance of my family friend, there was no obvious gore, and while I do remember seeing a damaged vehicle, it was only a little smashed up on the nose and alongside the driver's side. Overall, probably not something that should have left a big enough impression on me that I still think about it to this day, and perhaps I wouldn't have if it didn't happen in combination with my first experience with road hallucinations. It was a good hour down the line after I saw it. I was nearly home to my mom when the road began to shift and undulate. I mentioned it to the driver who told me I was just tired, and it was a common mirage. To my initial amusement, I began to see figures scrawled out on the surface of the road, like 2D cartoons. I began to describe it to the family friend, the many dragons and sweeping humanoids I was seeing in these dizzying little patterns, laughing and occasionally staring a bit as the visions grew more vivid. The friend driving me told me to stop looking at the road if it was scaring me. I, of course, didn't listen. Suddenly I saw a very pale, translucent figure in front of us about 15 yards away. It was low to the ground and appeared to be a person resting on its belly. I watched as it began to rush towards us. Now, Clearly legless, but crawling at a breakneck pace with its arms, it jumped on the hood of the car. Its face pocketed with empty sockets, like black voids. I screamed out loud, and then it was gone. I got reprimanded for hollowing and screaming and scaring the driver. I stopped looking at the road and happily walked into my mother's home when we arrived. Even though I told her all about my visit with my dad and my trip, including the weird illusions I saw, Telling my mom didn't stop me from plugging an old nightlight in the wall before going to bed and hiding under my blankets. That was also the first and last time I saw such a vivid mirage while in the car or otherwise. It's hard to describe just how very real this event felt to me, even though it happened so quickly. I still can picture its body and face moving towards me on that highway. Rationally, I knew it was a trick of the mind, 
I still love long road trips, especially if I'm not driving and get to watch the scenery. However, I do not try to stare too long at the dark asphalt these days. My husband and I went on a 10-day road trip where we went tent camping through eight national parks. We didn't necessarily have an encounter, but I wanted to share the story anyway. We were driving from Mesa Verde in Colorado to the Petrified Forest in Arizona. It was a three or four hour drive. We got a late start after eating dinner. I always start out as the first driver. Then when I get sleepy, as I typically do, he drives the rest of the way. My goal was to get to Gallup, New Mexico, to grab gas and switch seats. I jumped in the driver's seat after a long day of hiking, and down the winding, highway road we went as it got darker and darker outside. This road had too many curves to be considered a highway, in my opinion. Then, every few miles there was a sign to slow down due to road fatalities. Then there are sharp turnoffs leading to different housing areas. This wasn't a road I would have volunteered to drive down in the dark, but here I am. Carefully, I drive down this road in the dark, white-knuckling the steering wheel prepared for any number of creatures to run out in front of me, since there were very few houses or other buildings along the roadside. I kept hearing dogs barking and growling, even though I didn't think the houses were close enough for me to even be able to hear a dog growl. Even though there was no one else on this road, I felt like I was being watched or some something ominous. The curves turned into a straight road. My husband usually sleeps while I drive, but I kept him awake because something just felt odd and very off. A few hours in, I was getting extremely sleepy. My husband offered to drive. I would just have to pull over on the side of the road. I told him it was okay and nervously joked that if we stopped, the car probably wouldn't come back on, or we would end up getting the door knocked on by some black-eyed children. He stayed up and we chatted about how eerie this road felt. Thirty minutes later, we saw lights in the town of Gallup, New Mexico. I pulled into McDonald's and we got out to stretch and switch seats. That's when we noticed the highway signage. The top marker reads, Highway 491. The bottom marker reads, Formerly, Highway 666. After getting gas and getting on the interstate again, I started googling Highway 666. So many stories popped up. Hellhounds, disappearing hitchhikers, ghost trucks that run you off the road, UFO sightings, time loss, orbs, you name it, it's probably there. Route 666 has an unusually high number of road casualties. Well, it did anyway. Now that it's been renamed, the death toll per year doesn't seem to be as high. The Navajo land skirts the road, and they performed a blessing on it believing it to be evil. The Native American locals warned travelers about shapeshifters and evil medicine men. Mind you, we didn't know any of this beforehand. We didn't psych ourselves out before driving down the Devil's Highway. We thought it was a normal road at the time. Albeit a bit dangerous, while we didn't have any sightings of anything strange, I'll never forget the feelings of dread and alertness to my surroundings. I shudder to think what could have happened if we had decided to stop on the side of the road to switch seats.
A little background on me. I'm a 19-year-old male, and I was traveling with my girlfriend. We were on a road trip to visit my grandparents who lived a couple of states away. They said we could stay at their place for a few weeks over the summer, and it seemed like a no-brainer because they lived on the beach. The path to getting there, though, was long, and it was a painful drive. My girlfriend and I disliked driving, but we figured that we could take turns and it wouldn't be so miserable. I think the total time on the road was roughly about 10 hours or so. We were about 5 hours into the drive when we decided to stop at a rest stop. I'm not going to lie to you. We stopped quite a bit. I'm a little compulsive with drinking water because I like to stay hydrated. As you might imagine, there are some consequences of being hydrated. It did irritate my girlfriend to an extent, but not very much. I think she secretly liked that we were stopping for my sake and not hers because she always seemed to buy something every time we stopped. This one rest area was not horrible or anything like that. It wasn't in a bad area that I could tell. It seemed like a very typical safe rest stop, but this is where one of the most horrifying experiences of my life took place. At least, the first part of it. This has simply been one of the many times when I pulled off of the road to go pee. When I saw that there was also a McDonald's near this one rest area, I decided to wait until we got there. I normally don't eat McDonald's, but I let myself do it on special occasions like road trips. It makes the drive go by a little better, even if it makes my stomach feel like garbage. So, I went to the bathroom and she bought some more cigarettes. We had already made our way to the McDonald's when we had our first appearance with this creepy guy. We did talk to him a little bit. Let's, let's call him Joe. He was the strangest looking man I have ever laid my eyes on. He looked like he didn't come from this country or anything like that, and not on a racial basis or anything, he just looked like he had a completely different lifestyle. As if he lived off the land and had never used electricity a day in his life. His beard went all the way down to his stomach, and if you looked at it for long enough, you could see food particles in there, and some of them, not even from a meal that he had eaten today, probably from days before so that should give you a good idea of his level of cleanliness. The rest of his outfit followed suit, a dark pair of jeans that looked like they hadn't been washed in a decade, and a large leather jacket that looks like the oldest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm sure it wasn't that old, but it had a timely appearance due to it being in such poor condition. Anyway, we spoke to Joe because he awkwardly sat next to us at McDonald's. I thought this was extremely strange, and it weirded me out. I am an introvert by nature. Talking to people is extremely taxing. My girlfriend is an extrovert and always attracted people that were interested in the conversation. I just found it strange because I never had someone randomly sit at the same table as me. Like, this was kind of very out of my comfort zone. I figured that it was because of my girlfriend attracting talkers, but looking back, it was probably because we appeared to be easy targets. Joe sat down next to my girlfriend and started asking us what we were doing and where we were going. My girlfriend, being the optimistic and unsuspecting person that she is, gave him the entire story, that we were basically five hours away from anyone that we knew in any given direction. I tried to give her a look that she needed to shut up, but she didn't get the hint. We had already ordered our food and were sitting down and eating. He didn't order anything. He just invited himself to our table and talked to us for the entire time. At first, he was rather polite, but had a thick accent that didn't seem like it belonged anywhere that I knew of. 
I couldn't tell you where the accent came from because I've never heard anything like it in my entire life. And this is coming from someone who knows plenty of people from the North, Midwest, the South, Australia, and anywhere else in the world. This accent just didn't seem like it came from Earth. After a painful experience of trying to get away from Joe, we got back in our car and started on the journey again. As we got to our car, I also noticed that Joe had gotten into his car as well. As we had pulled out, Joe was a good distance away from us. I thought this was extremely strange, and the warning signs in my head went from flashing to high alert. I knew that we were in danger. I was driving and I tried putting the pedal to the metal. The next half hour or so, I had probably gone faster than I ever have in my entire life. I was normally a safe driver, but this guy was really freaking me out. I tried telling my girlfriend that this guy was tailing us, but she genuinely didn't believe me. She thought I was just being paranoid. But what are the odds of seeing this guy at the gas station and then him being behind us for 30 minutes after we get on the road? She told me to pull over at the next rest stop and we would know for sure if he was trying to do us harm. Stupidly, that's exactly what I did, and my worst suspicion came true. He pulls off at the same rest stop and parked right next to us. My adrenaline was rushing as I got ready to fight this guy. I didn't know what else to do. I told my girlfriend to call the police, and then I got out of the car. He was easily a foot taller than me, but he was a little older and probably not in the best shape. I could probably take him if I had to. I also had the benefit of being an athlete at my college. I did all the intramural sports stuff like that, so I was in decent shape. But none of that mattered when Joe pulled out a knife. There was an immediate understanding between the two of us at that moment. The understanding that he was out to do his harm and I was going to have to fight him. I waited for him to approach. About 30 seconds went by and he started walking in my direction. My heart was pounding. I started screaming every insult that I could. I called him a degenerate and an old man who has been way over his head that I was going to whip his ass. It didn't scare him though. When he got within 15 feet of me, I thought it would be a good idea to tackle him. I was going to... I was going to try to take him by surprise, you know? But I didn't. I tried getting him off of his feet and onto the floor, but when I tackled him, he plunged his knife right into my back. That was the only good hit he got on me, though. I managed to get him on the floor, and after that I started kicking his head ferociously. I didn't know how I managed to do it, but he was on the ground seemingly unconscious, and I was just standing there. I could feel the blood flowing down my back and I got into the back seat of my car and yelled at my girlfriend to drive me to the nearest hospital. I was questioned a few days later at the hospital, but I don't think anything really happened of it. I guess the police showed up after we had left and found Joe still there unconscious. He was in a coma and the police didn't know what to think. Once they got mine and my girlfriend's version of the story, they seemed to believe it and I think the gas station cameras corroborated that. So that was that. I don't know when or if Joe will ever wake up from the coma, and honestly, after he almost killed me, I kind of hope he dies. That was an extremely traumatic experience for me and my girlfriend. The good news about the situation is that I can tell people that I put someone in a coma once, and if they don't listen to me, they're next. This story happened to my dad and his wife. He was driving in the middle of nowhere in Utah, I believe, 
He and his wife wanted to make a stop at a gas station to get some snacks, use the bathroom, etc. When he got to the gas station, he saw a police car parked out in the lot. When they walked into the gas station, he saw a man at the register. My dad saw that the man was listening to a police radio. My dad didn't really think anything of it at the time, and he asked the man if they needed a key to the bathroom or if it was unlocked. The man looked anxious and uncomfortable. The man told my dad that he didn't think that he needed one, so my dad walked to the bathroom. Right before he went in, he saw a doorway with a curtain in front of it next to the bathroom door. My dad looked at the end of the curtain and saw that there was what he thought to be men's feet and what he believes to be police officer's shoes. My dad tried to stay calm, so he walked into the bathroom and just stood there contemplating what to do. He got himself to calm down. Then he walked out calmly of the bathroom and went to his wife and calmly said, Hey babe, let's go home. I'm pretty tired. My dad just wanted to make sure this guy couldn't do something to them if, if something ended up happening. She looked confused but then understood what he was trying to do so they paid for the gas and left. What my dad thinks happened is that guy killed the police officer and took his police radio to make sure no one was trying to contact the police. But while he was hiding the body... My dad and his wife drove into the lot, so he pretends to be the cashier. I asked my dad why he never called the police and he said that if he did, the guy at the gas station would hear the dispatcher and he would go after my dad. They were on a road trip and had a huge trailer and that guy could easily catch them, I guess. I don't know. That's the logic he had at the time. My family likes to take long road trips from time to time. There are seven of us in total, so we usually take my family's 2005 Chevy Suburban. It was getting old, but could still normally handle long trips easily as my dad is a master mechanic and kept it well maintained. However, this trip was different. My dad had recently fixed a truck for some friends for the family, who had recently moved away to Billings, Montana, while we were in eastern Iowa. My parents decided that we could take the French truck over to them and make a vacation out of it. So we loaded the French truck onto a car trailer and we piled into the Suburban and hit the road. As we neared the northern border of Iowa, my dad came to the realization that the trailer brakes had stopped working. I heard him talking to my mom about how we could probably make it just fine with the brakes on the Suburban. Both couldn't shake a feeling that they had felt like something was going to go wrong. Almost like a premonition, you know? We already have a heavily loaded up Suburban, a car trailer with a pickup truck on it, and a riding lawnmower, and some other parts in the back of the pickup truck. If we had to slow down or stop, it could be quite hard. Then, my dad remembered a friend of his who ran a truck repair shop nearby and gave him a call. His friend quickly agreed to help him repair the trailer brakes. So after an hour and a half of waiting around in this tiny town, we were back on the road again. As we continued north, we noticed dozens of motorcyclists everywhere. That's when we realized we were heading through South Dakota. At the same time, we were going through Sturgis. For anyone who doesn't know, Sturgis is a huge motorcycle rally town, basically in South Dakota. Now, my dad quickly begins to get a little tense as we... We don't really have anything against bikers, 
but due to the sheer amount of them and the large vehicle and trailer combo that we are driving, it was going to be a challenge to stop if they needed to bob and weep between us, you know? After some time, we finally make it to the hotel that we had booked that night. Now, my mom had really wanted us to visit Mount Rushmore for obvious reasons. It was along the route, and we wouldn't have to make too much of a detour. As we were getting closer to Mount Rushmore, I noticed more and more mountains, and even more bikers as we continued to push onwards. We finally made it to Mount Rushmore, and as soon as we had hit the suburban parking area, my dad immediately gets out of the car and sits down and starts shaking his head in his hands. My dad is not easily shaken at all. Seeing him in this condition really surprised me. I had to ask him what was wrong, when my mom grabs my arm and pulls me away and leads all my brothers away to some public restrooms. A little while later, my dad joins us at a bookstore and had mostly calmed down. I then hear my dad say something, and I think he was mentioning why he was so shaken up. It turns out we had nearly killed over a dozen bikers at the bottom of a long, steep hill. We were trying to make our way down the hill and my dad realized that there was a large group of bikers at the bottom of the hill, all stopping at a red light, which had to be the worst placed intersection I have ever seen. When my dad saw it, he stomped on the car's brakes and to his horror, th they failed. He then locked the trailer brakes and then somehow, by the will of God, it brought us to a stop. He's not sure how they managed to do it, but thank God that they did. He knew for certain that if we had not fixed the trailer brakes, we would have certainly crushed all those bikers, and they would have had no idea that they were going to meet their fate that day. Hi, I am a resident of Poplar Creek, seven miles south of Leeton, Alabama, and I graduated from Charity Chapel Academy in Crooked Oak, Alabama. As you can imagine, by the names, we are heavily wooded areas and are small towns. Just a few years ago, a girl I went to high school with at a church came up missing. Her name was Amanda Taylor. I don't know if anyone has ever reported this to any of these types of channels, or if there has ever been a story done but I wanted to share it. Her father, who was at the time the preacher of the church our school was based in, has tirelessly tried to have a law passed in her name to shorten the amount of time in Alabama, at least in our area, that you can report an adult missing. At least, an adult that is responsible or with children or generally would not likely go missing. It seems that the police disregard these kind of cases early on most of the time, even if these type of people aren't known to go abandoning their children. With laws like this enacted, police would have to go search for people like this much earlier. It was amazing how many people signed that petition, but I don't think the law was ever passed, but he was sure something had happened to his daughter, and he was right. Because this letter came out from her ex-husband and his new girlfriend, saying that they murdered her, and from what I understand, there were pieces of her found in Nat Pond, off Nat Pond Road and they found more things and biological evidence burned somewhere out on Coburn Mountain. I think his name was Ronald Weems. I'm pretty sure that was his name because he and his sister, Brandy Road, were my grandmother's friends and were very familiar with them from church, I believe. Not all is lost here. When Brandy 
Ronald's sister found out about what happened to Amanda, she immediately came forward. This was not a case of my brother's keeper. She was appalled with the things he had done and heartbroken for her nieces, not knowing what their father was. It's possible she testified against him, but I can't remember for sure. He may have made a plea deal, but I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, this was several years ago, but either way, he has since been convicted of the crime. But it took many searches and a lot of rallying on her father's part for them to believe that she hadn't just simply ran away and skipped out on her three children. No, I have never done anything like this. I have never submitted any stories to YouTube before. But after hearing your story and video on that boy from Arab, I began to think of Amanda again, standing up there in her cap and gown, with such a shining life before her, and then ending up in that swamp. It breaks my heart, and I wish to draw attention to these cases. I am a single mother with three children. It would take a psycho surprise attack where I can't reach my gun first to take me away from my babies. And I can imagine she would have been saying the same thing. Thank you for your time. I hope you're having a pleasant weekend. And thank you for sharing this story, even though it wasn't exactly a scary story. Number two by Todd B. Some backstory. My town is a fairly small town in central Oklahoma. Known for a huge oil boom in the 1920s and 30s. It's unknown what the school is built on, but it's certainly a hotspot. Let's also not forget this is Oklahoma. Therefore, it's very questionable as to what the school is built on. My grandmother works at this school. She has for about 27 years if I'm correct. The school was built in 1972, with an addition of the cafeteria and gym in the 80s. The first story happened to my grandmother, probably 15 to 20 years ago. Whistling was heard all around the school, loud, but it was never known where it came from. My grandmother figured it was most likely the band teacher. He's been there for some time, as long as I can remember, and he's been there since before I was born. He still teaches today, and I can confirm the whistles. A lot. At some point within about a week, my grandmother got used to the whistling and just began ignoring it, even on days when nobody was at the school with her. One day, she heard the whistling. Not thinking much of it, she just continued working. A man walked up to her in a grey wool suit, something far out of style. She sees him, stops him, and says, Hey, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. He stops, looks at her, stops whistling, smiles, and begins whistling again. He proceeds to walk into a classroom, and the door slams shut behind him. It took her some time before she finally decided to open the door. There was nothing in there. The room had a window. But there's a screen. The window was closed and the screen was unbothered, as it cannot be opened. The next story takes place later, roughly 2014 to 2016. I'm in about 4th to 6th grade. The school is a 4th to 6th grade elementary school, so I'd go with her in the mornings. 
At that time, I'd be at school no matter what. For a little while, I'd get bored of cartoons and knew of ghost stories. I decided it'd be funny to scare her while cleaning her classrooms. I knew of a class that had a perfect hiding spot right outside the door. I'd knock on a locker right next to the door and wait for her to investigate and jump out and scare her. I did this often until I got bored of it, but it seems somebody seemed to enjoy it. I was watching cartoons since my interest went back to those days, and my grandmother comes running into the teacher's lounge and asks if I did what I normally do. I denied, of course, and she believed me. Years later, I found out what happened. She was cleaning the classroom I'd always scare her at. It was a normal routine for her at this point. Clean the room, hear a knock on the locker. She had enough of it and just said, Okay, little man, my childhood nickname they still call me, to be honest, despite being about 5 foot 10 now. You don't scare me. And a little girl runs in giggling. The girl runs under the table and my grandma looks, sees nothing and simply says, Okay, you scared me. And finally finishes up the classroom and moves on. This little girl ghost I seem to have influenced isn't aggressive. She was never seen there until after I played my games. And it seems. She still has her fun on teachers to this day. I deep down consider her a friend for keeping my stupid little games a reality, but in a far more scary and somewhat cool way. My third story again involves my grandmother. I have a few that involve me as well, but my grandmothers are far more interesting. This one happened in 2019. She was in an accident heading up to Norman, Oklahoma, about halfway there. She was sideswiped by a pickup. Luckily, she was fine. Merely got some whiplash and a repaired Ford Fusion. She was out of work for about a month. She returned and was cleaning a classroom. One to the right of the one I played my pranks on her in. She was cleaning it, and she bent down to pick something up only to come back up and be completely surrounded by people, all of them in clothing far out of style today, and all of them being spirits she's previously seen, all of which said simultaneously, we've missed you, before disappearing. She wasn't in fear of any of them. Here's a few of my own at the school. I don't really see anything, but I feel things. And I have heard things. I've never really felt anything aggressive, other than the one in the library. But even so, it is more of a don't mess with me and I won't mess with you type. I've always imagined it as a gangster. I also remember there were lots of orbs in the gym, just everywhere on the infrared security camera. I heard lockers bang on occasion, and a girl and I heard a piano play on its own. I remember a lot of kids also saying things about how the room the man walked into had an odd feeling to it. I still feel things any time I'm over there. Some background information before I get started. There is a small town called Alfreda, a little way past Tombstone in Arizona. 
My grandparents own many acres of land there. They harvest pecans and own about a dozen cows. This land used to be inhabited by Native American Indians. My best friend and I love to go out and find arrowheads, small bottles, and other cool things of this kind. When I was about 15 or so, we went to visit my grandparents. My mom, my stepdad, my three younger siblings, and my best friend Lauren. We got there, said hello, and then everyone went off to do their own thing. Lauren and I decided to go up the mountain and explore some of the old caves that were there. We went up to our usual way and started looking at the holes the Indians used to use for grinding food. There were also exquisite cave paintings. We had only been up there for about 30 minutes or so before we began to feel incredibly uneasy. I felt queasy in my stomach and started to feel like I was being watched. At one point I felt like I was going to start dry heaving for some reason. We decided to leave right then and there, and began walking down to where we parked our four-wheeler. We were almost there when we heard what sounded like a rock fall off one of the larger ridges above us. We totally freaked out and ran down to the vehicle and sped off as fast as we could. I don't think I've ever ran that fast in my life. I do listen to a lot of scary stories, so I immediately started thinking and maybe overthinking that this was some sort of skimwalker or some sort of cryptid chasing us. Lauren did manage to calm me down saying it was probably just a mountain lion or something like that. We got home and decided not to tell my parents and just move on. But later that evening, my family all decided to go to the lake. The lake was only about a mile and a half away, maybe two miles from the house at most. You follow a trail that has an orchard on one side and the cow pasture on the other. And once you get about halfway, you must get out and open a gate. So the rest of the trail you're riding in the cow pasture. But on your left side, you're riding up along this fence, and on the other side is just unkept Arizona wilderness. My family left a little before me, but they left me the keys to the other four-wheeler. I left on my own and started the drive. The first half went without incident. However, once I got to open the gate, I heard what sounded like one of our cows. But it wasn't on the right side of the fence. It was on the left side of the fence. There was something off about it, though. It sounded more robotic-like, I guess. I just listened, and the sound eventually distorted into, like, a scream. This startled me. I threw the gate open and quickly drove through. I had to get out of there, but I also had to get off the thing again and shut the gate. When I did this, I heard that god-awful scream again. It sounded like it was only a few feet away from me this time. I got the fence gate shut. I turned to the fence where I heard the noise, and what I saw scared the absolute life out of me. It was this coyote standing on the other side of the fence, but it wasn't normal. It's like its lips were missing and exposing these incredibly unnaturally sharp teeth. They were jagged and almost misplaced looking. His bones were sticking out of the skin and looked barely draped over its body. Its eyes were pure yellow as if they were glowing. I stumbled backward and booked it to my vehicle as fast as I could. The thing jumped at the fence making the most terrifying screech I have ever heard in my life. Its bones cracked when it moved and this horrible smell filled the air like rotting flesh and rusted metal. I sped to the lake where my family was sitting, laughing, talking, and just overall enjoying their time. I walked over and took a seat next to my best friend. She immediately knew something was wrong with me. 
I didn't tell her about what I saw until we were driving back to the farmhouse together. She seemed to believe me. I was so shaken by this that I couldn't sleep at all that night. We left in the morning, and after a few days, I eventually calmed down and felt fine again. I still don't know how I got over it that quickly. It all seemed so unreal in a way, like the feeling you get after you realize a nightmare was only a nightmare. But I know it was real, and I'm just unaffected by it, I believe. I don't know. Sometimes I think that this may have been a skimwalker. But I'm not entirely sure. After some research, I did find out that this area was previously Indian territory. This was the first time I've ever seen one myself, but it was most definitely not the last. I think this thing is hooked on me now. I don't think it's exactly following me, but I do think I've been running into it very often. Today's episode is sponsored by Talkspace. Honestly, guys, mental health is very important, and everybody in the swamps will be taking their mental health very, very importantly as well. Over the years, we have shifted how we work and learn, but sometimes it feels like the world is changing faster than we can honestly keep up. I myself have struggled with anxiety and bipolar issues in the past, and talking to somebody has always helped me out. But, you know, with COVID going around and other scares and all that, it can be hard to get into an actual office. But now, Talkspace makes that much easier. The people around us make a huge impact on our lives, and life's pressures can cause our relationships to change for better and worse. And honestly, it's very frustrating to grow out of relationships with friends, family, and partners sometimes, and we can all use somebody to talk to. I know mental health might have a weird stigma sometimes, but honestly, going to Talkspace.com and talking to an online therapist can really help. It helped me, and I was definitely a skeptic at first. So please, join me and many others in the swamp if you need a little support to help you through the end of the year or want to start building towards a better upcoming year. Talkspace is here to help. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code SWAMPED. That's $100 off when you use code SWAMPED at Talkspace.com. It was one year ago. My family and I were living in upstate New York in a small town called Lowville. It's a small rural kind of town that is an hour away from the Fort Drum military base, and the only thing was in the downtown area was mainly bars and a couple of restaurants and maybe an antique shop or two. The rest of it was just vacant buildings and some insurance buildings, which weren't really, you know, anything to be looking at. It was the kind of town I liked to be in, to be honest but it has a fair and a festival year-round, which I did attend. The only other thing I could do when those occasional events weren't going on was to walk around the fairgrounds for a bit. So it was one night I decided to go for a walk around the fairgrounds because I was feeling restless. So I needed to get out of the house for a bit, and it feels good to go out and get some exercise and fresh air. When I got to the fairgrounds, I began to enjoy a good exercise walk around and getting a nice little late workout until I spotted something from a distance. These fairgrounds are kind of like a park that also has the county fair. It also included a small baseball field and a grandstand. From where I was standing, it looked like there was a person just standing there on the pitcher's mound, and I was asking myself, why is there someone just standing there in the middle of a baseball field here this late at night at the fairgrounds? I just thought that was very odd, but suddenly it appeared that the person's form began to change. 
It looked to be that the person's form drastically grew eight feet tall, and the person's head changed from a human face to the skull of what looked like a deer or something. It looked like antlers were starting to protrude from the head. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I just felt like I was in a horror movie, because those are the types of things you'll see in horror films. I was completely, 100% petrified. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I felt goosebumps all over my entire body, and I was completely stiff with horror. This was the most scared I had ever felt in my life, the only time I felt near death. I just watched and gritted my teeth until I realized that I needed to think of an escape plan from that area. I obviously couldn't just keep standing there and wait for the creature to notice me and attack me. I was lucky that I was in a spot where the creature couldn't really notice me, so I realized I had the upper hand and I can escape. So I had the courage to run off from that area at lightning speed. I felt adrenaline shoot through my body as I kept running at a fast pace. I heard the creature let out a guttural scream as I kept running and running without ever looking back. I finally stopped running when I reached a safe neighborhood surrounded by houses and lighting, also where I knew the creature probably wouldn't come get me. I just kept hyperventilating and trying to catch my breath and clear my mind to figure out what the heck that thing was. I don't know if I was the first one to encounter something like this in this town, or maybe if other people have but they just didn't want to tell anyone about it because they were too scared. All I do know is that I'm never returning to that town or those fairgrounds as long as I live. So these are four experiences I've had growing up in a small town in western Michigan from the age of 6 to 18, when I eventually left the state. I will put them in order of how they happened. When I was 6 years old, during the summer, I would always wake up before my mom and walk to our living room and look out of our sliding door for deer. My parents owned about 7 acres, and almost all of it was an open field. This particular morning though, I walked up to the slider and looked out, and the only way I can describe what I saw was this big-headed black dog thing that was just staring back at me from less than 100 yards away. It looked like it was just staring me in the eyes, like it knew I had just saw it. It almost knew that I had just walked up to the sliding glass door, I felt. I saw it leaning on a low-hanging branch, and it just didn't seem right. The head was so massive. Most of my family owned large dogs, so I knew it just didn't seem quite right. It seemed more dog-like rather than bear-like. I sprinted back to my room and waited until my mom woke up but never said anything about it. The second weird thing I saw years later was of course another morning when I woke up in early November when I was 10 years old, again looking for deer. This time I saw something running along the tree line about 100 yards away. It was about the height of a Great Dane if I had to guess, and had a silverish gray color. It wasn't multicolor, just one flat color, and it was huge. The head, again, was shaped more like a wolf. Its fur was short, but it wasn't shaggy, which was weird because in November, in Michigan, everything was getting its winter coat. It was just trotting along the wood line, stopping, and what looked like marking, and then it would keep on walking just like a dog or a wolf would. But it was incredibly tall and unbelievably quick. The third encounter was when I was 13 years old and just got into trapping. 
I was setting up a trap one night, hoping to catch a coyote. Suddenly, I hear just this absolute heart-thumping, bone-snapping sound coming from the woods. All I hear is these snaps and crunches. I then realize there are no birds making any noises at all. I know you shouldn't turn your back and run if you ever think there's a predator, but I was not sticking around to see what was making that noise. I went out the next day with my 30-30 and retrieved my trapping gear. Surprisingly, nothing even touched the bait. The final story is the one that scared me the most. I was 17 years old. It was a summer evening, and we would leave our sliding glass door open sometimes, just with our screen door closed so we could have a nice breeze in the house. We had a black lab that would just lay by the screen door and smell all the scents from outside. She normally did this every night. But on this night in question, she started to growl and her hackles came up and she slowly walked away from the door. So I walked over to the screen door and in the wood line a little over 100 yards away, I could hear something heavy moving through the woods. I always kept a flashlight near the door because I would like to shine and see how many deer would walk through the field that night and also be able to see where my dog was. No, I never poached a deer or shot at them at night. I just like to see how many there were walking around. So, while I shined the light, I saw a set of eyes pop up in this clearing in the woods. The light was not quite bright enough to pick up anything but eye shine. So, when I saw the eyes, they definitely weren't the, the whites of a deer's eyes, that's for sure. They were bluish red, like just a color I don't even know how to explain. They were whiter apart than a deer as well, or anything I had ever seen before. Now, I couldn't tell you the exact distance it was because the clearing was probably about 75 yards long and 40 yards wide, but the eyes were unusually far apart, and it wasn't blinking. It just stared at me, seemingly soulless. As I'm writing this, I have goosebumps all over me. So, after staring for a minute, I decided to make a deer snort sound to see if it would turn its head. No dice. I made the noise three more times, very loudly, and to no avail, it just stared, not blinking at all. So I decided I would stomp on the wooden deck. I stomped twice, and it woke up my brother, and my mom came out and asked me what was going on. The whole time I just stared back at this thing, and it stared back at me, and it never blinked. I decided that I needed to go back inside and lock the door. Ever since then, I've had no clue what it was but I guess I never really have wanted to find out either. There have been three instances in my life where I have felt like I was going to be abducted. I'm a woman, and I'm currently 23 years old. I'm also on the petite side, standing at a whopping 5'3", and weighing roughly around 115 pounds. Because of this, I typically wear heels or platform boots so that I can appear taller than I actually am. This story happened this spring while at a second-hand store. I was looking to find a good side table style cabinet and my boyfriend came with me because I have already been nearly abducted twice in my life. I could write about these in the future if you would like. And I suffer from CPTSD in part of that, so I'm not really able to go out in public by myself unless I'm with someone, going to class, or going to work. Lucky for me, my boyfriend is 6 foot 3, lean but muscular, has a very deep, intimidating voice, and has absolutely no issues with taking physical action if I needed it. But basically, it's like having my own caring, personal bodyguard. For context, the area I live in is bad for human trafficking, 
I live in northern Wisconsin, but close to Minneapolis. The I-94 runs basically straight to Minneapolis from the Dells. I grew up in that area and I know full well that the Dells has bad trafficking issues too because of the high levels of tourism in that area. Plus, Baraboo, the next town over from the Dells, still has running cargo trains that are rumored to be contributing to the trafficking. But that's not entirely relevant. The town I currently live in is split in half by the same interstate and there's a Walmart right by the exit, also infamous for trafficking. There have been many abductions of women in our town in various locations all over and it isn't a secret to anybody that it's an issue for the area. Now with the story. My boyfriend and I go to the next town over to look for a cabinet styled side table because the secondhand shops in our town don't sell furniture. We get inside and look around a little bit before my boyfriend says he needs to go to the bathroom. I keep browsing nearby the bathrooms in a display area for desks, dressers, etc. And I find this neat vintage vanity with hidden organizers in the top of the desk and I start looking at it and checking out its little features. While doing so, I feel eyes on me, so I look around to see if I'm being watched by someone. Sure enough, in the row of desks behind me, there's a middle-aged man looking at me with no facial expressions. I'm dressed in a skirt and knee socks, and this is one of my go-to looks, so glaring at creepy men eyeing me up isn't something new to me, but since I'm alone now and don't want to anger the guy, I give him the cliche Midwestern half-smile and move up the row away from him, but towards the corner of the section. Suddenly, this guy practically runs to the row I'm in, so I take a right and head up towards where he was standing when I initially spotted him. He picks up pace and I am now half running trying to get away from him and after a small chase around the furniture, we end up in a situation where I'm standing on one side of the row of desk and he is standing on the other, waiting to see which way I will go, at a standstill. At this moment, I try looking to my left towards the other furniture and bathrooms to see if anyone is around to witness this and thank Gaia, my boyfriend is out of the bathroom already walking towards us with a very squared up posture. He looks livid and his eyes are locked solidly onto this creep that was chasing me around the furniture just a second ago. My boyfriend reaches my side and puts his arm around my shoulder, protectively, and he and the creep make eye contact. They honestly both looked equally angry. The guy doesn't say anything, just walks away, but every few minutes or so we see him looking at us from a few miles away, wherever we are in the store, and I am anxious as hell at this point and just want to leave my boyfriend is trying to do his best to reassure me and calm me down in the best way he knows, but with no avail. He eventually distracts me from the guy by finding a perfect side table that I was looking for. Dark cherry wood, glass door, shelves, beautiful and only $30, not to mention a student discount. We picked it up and head to the checkout. The entire time I am paranoid and looking around to see if this guy is near us. He is currently being checked out at the register and we are being separated by two other customers. My anxiety spikes again, but I try not to let it show. When he is done, he walks through the first set of doors to exit, but is still in the first entrance of the store just standing there. He looks at me, and we make eye contact a few times while I'm in line and then checking out. I make it a point to stand on the right side of my boyfriend, carrying my new find out and holding eye contact with the creep the whole time we exit and get to the car. He doesn't say or do anything. He didn't follow us. He just stared at me, and we get to the car safely. Although I am still paranoid and trying to get the side table in the car and secure it as fast as possible, which is just making me fumble more, but regardless, 
we left safe and made it home okay. I can't say for certain that this man was trying to abduct me, let alone if he was working with human traffickers, but I highly doubt he was chasing and stalking me around the store with pure intentions. This weird thing that I'm going to be talking about happened early February of 2019. Me, my ex-best friend, and her family went to Dave & Buster's. It was my very first time going, and I was very excited. So I was exploring the place until it was time to leave. Me and my friend, who I will call A for privacy reasons, decided to go head outside and in the parking lot to smoke some weed before her mom came. Give it about a few minutes, probably 15 minutes or so, and her mom would come and they were heading out of the parking lot. 10 minutes later, we were still on the road, so I and A started to get tired, and so we fell asleep. As soon as I closed my eyes, I saw that her mom was moving the steering wheel all crazy. I began to notice that she was drunk, and her friend who was driving was trying to take her hands off the steering wheel. I then felt the car move so fast, with so much pressure, I noticed we had crashed, and now I was bleeding from all over my face and my body. It's really hard to describe how I felt in the moment. I almost felt detached from the situation, if that makes any sense. I turned to my right to see my friend unconscious, her mom as well, and then her mom's friend clearly dead. I was the only one conscious until my vision became blurry, and then I soon blacked out. I saw a white bright light, and by now my soul was clearly out of my body or so I think it was. I saw myself lying there bleeding on the hospital bed as I saw my family surrounding me crying and praying for me to wake up. I kept hearing a voice telling me, See, this is what happens when you don't do the right things. I don't know if it was God himself giving me a sign or the devil. I then heard a whispering voice telling me to wake up. I gasped out loud for air, so loud that I had woken up my friend up all paranoid. The same car we had crashed in that dream of mine, or whatever that was, was now in front of us. I yelled out, watch out, as the driver had pulled the brakes before crashing into the car. I couldn't believe it. I just saw our death happening before it happened, just like in that movie Final Destination. I had trouble sleeping for a couple of weeks since that incident. I don't know what that was, but I know that it was not due to being high or due to fear or anything like that. I hadn't even smoked with my friend. I was completely sober. When we went back home, I tried explaining to my friend what I saw, and she just thought I was paranoid, but I know what I saw was not imagination. A week had passed by, and A's mom and I went to the store, and she started telling me about how her friend who was driving us that night had a dream about death. He said that he had died, and that there was a black thing with red eyes and a horse or something who had come to take him. He had saw himself in the coffin covered with white roses. I still think about this to this day, of what this experience was. I can only really think of it as a near-death experience. I will say that if anything, I'd like to think it was a good thing, because at least I gave the driver a heads up that he was going to hit a different car. At around age 11, I was into the urban exploration sort of stuff that you would see on YouTube. 
Since then, I've fortunately grown out of that phase, but it took me nearly dying to change my mind. Without further ado, let's begin. One frigid December morning, my cousins came over to visit from the opposite side of the neighborhood. Since we were bored, and all happened to be grounded from our phones at the same time, it was my stroke of genius to show them a dangerous cliff about a half mile behind my house. Though we were technically on my now deceased neighbor Mike's property, we weren't really worried about him coming out and yelling at us. So off we went, trudging through last night's waist-deep Michigan snowfall. We hopped over the broken fence dividing our properties. We carried on, deeper into the shimmering forest. After nearly a half hour of scaling snow-covered hills, we reached the cliff in question. Now, it was rather small as cliffs are considered, only 70 to 100 feet by my estimation. We had fun playing in the fresh blanket of snow. Eventually, trying to be the cool kid in the group, I lowered myself down into the steep decline. Almost immediately, I began to slide down toward the sheer drop-off, which although only about 10 or 15 feet off the bottom of the cliff, it was over a massive pile of cut-down trees. I grabbed onto one of the few bushes that dotted the hillier part of the slope and squeezed as tight as I could. I had managed to catch myself only about 12 feet from the drop, meaning that I was situated on an extremely steep cliff, 45 feet or so below my cousins and only 12 feet from having broken bones. You may wonder when this turns into a near-death experience, and here's where it starts. My oldest cousin ran off to get my parents. I was stuck making nervous conversation with my slightly older, very annoying cousin. All of this happens as I'm cautiously scaling the way I thought would be the fastest, a semi-sideways route to a lower outcropping of solid ground. After about two or three minutes, I was getting close enough to grab a rusty hunk of some barbed wire fence. I had hopped over not even 20 minutes before. I was using it as a makeshift ladder. After about a minute's struggle, my left hand slipped and I dangled one-handed over a 50-foot sheer drop. My cousin luckily came back with my family and rescued me not even a second later. This is the story of how I almost died. It may be a little anticlimactic, but honestly, it's still terrifying to me. Hi there, my name is Dave Scott, host of Spaced Out Radio. I want to say hello and thank you to Swamp Dweller and all of the listeners of the Swamp for making this channel as awesome as it is. I listen every night after my show, and the stories here are enough to leave me with goosebumps. After hearing your stories, I thought I would add a creepy story of my own. This is called, I Died. I Died Today. No, not in real life, but in a dream that was so surreal that it literally has shaken me to the core. Right now, as I speak about this, I find that my anxiety level is at an all-time high because of this dream. Was it a dream? Was it something more that I have yet to understand? Right now, I'm not so sure. You see, I've always had a fear of death, to the point where even as an adult, as I've aged, there have been times where it's rattled me so badly that I've literally put my running shoes on and sprinted down the street as fast as I could because mentally I thought I could outrun the inevitable. Deep down though, I know that's impossible. 
I was 15 years old when I first experienced death in my life. It was my maternal grandmother who passed away. I remember feeling awkward, like I should cry, and I did. However, I wasn't so sure how much I was supposed to cry. Or, at my young age, was I supposed to be young and a tough man and hold it all together the way men should? I wasn't particularly close with my grandmother, unfortunately. I wish I would have been, and I wish I would have got to know her better. I was always so much closer to my dad's side of the family. The first time I realized I wasn't immortal was when I was 18, when a young man I used to hang out with in high school, named Kyle, was killed in a car accident. I've always thought about what his parents went through. From what I had heard, his father had a very tough time with the loss. I couldn't imagine how my own parents would cope with that. Unfortunately, I'd find out years later when my nephew, my parents' first grandchild, would unexpectedly die from a fentanyl overdose in the summer of 2018. No one should have to bury their own child. It's one of the true horrors in life. My fear of death came in 1999 when my daughter was four months old. She had awakened, and I was rocking her at night and carrying her around the house, comforting her like any daddy would for his baby girl. I was 25 years old. As I was rocking her, I was whispering in her ear how beautiful she was, how I was going to love her forever, how I was going to protect her forever, how I was going to be there for her forever. It was the word forever that set me off, and I felt like sinking into my stomach that I had just lied to my infant girl. How could I be there for her forever when I know one day I will die? I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I want to be there, always, for my baby girl. The tears and panic immediately started to flow and kick in. As I was holding my daughter, I kept apologizing to her that one day her daddy was not going to be there for her. One day this beautiful life would come to an end. Then what? It's over? It's gone? Ashes to ashes? Dust to dust? I have always believed in God, but what if science is right and there is no God to comfort me, to bring me home, and if there is a God, and we are supposed to be of his creation, then why did he create us just to die? This still doesn't make any sense to me, and hauntingly creates knots in my stomach. Over the next couple of decades, the panic attacks came and went, but nothing prepared me for this latest encounter. I died. I remember climbing into bed about one o'clock in the morning. I played my video game for a few minutes to tire myself out. When I knew it was time for bed, I turned my game off and started listening to Swamp Dweller. Normally, I turned my game off and started listening to an episode of Swamp Dweller, which was on Dogman Encounters. Now normally, I'm not someone who remembers my dreams. The only time I seem to remember my dreams is when I have encounters with aliens. Yes, whether you believe in that phenomena or not, I am an ET contactee. But this dream, this time, I remembered it was just as vivid, but highly different. It actually came a few days after I had had an ET encounter. In my dream, I remember myself being thrown lengthwise into water. My entire body hit the water, and I was not moving. I couldn't move. I saw the splashes of water all around me, and the air bubbles starting to move up towards the surface. I remember I was sinking, 
I realized that this is me, in my body. I knew I was dead. I saw the light above the water start to get greener as my body started sinking deeper and deeper. I tried to take a deep breath, but I couldn't because I knew I was dead. Still, sinking. And as the water started getting darker and darker, and the bright light from above started getting smaller and smaller, I tried moving my arms to swim upwards. They wouldn't move. I tried kicking my legs. It was no use. I was dead. I was trying to scream, or at least see if I could inhale water through my nose or mouth, but it was no use. Nothing in my body was working, because I was dead. In my head, I was starting to panic. I didn't understand why this was happening. It was then that I felt my lifeless body settle gently on the bottom of this watery grave. I was staring up at the small beam of light above me, knowing that I would never leave this spot again. My body was going to be here until the fishes started eating away at me. I recall looking around and seeing that there wasn't any fish around at this point, thank goodness. I started wondering, what is happening on the surface of the water, and why was there no one coming to rescue me? Then I remembered. I was dead. Internally, I was having another grave panic attack. I started thinking why. If I was dead, why was my soul trapped in my body underwater? Why wasn't I leaving my body? Was I really supposed to be here, down here, underneath this watery grave for good? Where was God in all of this? Why wasn't I released to the heavens to fly around freely? I felt trapped, claustrophobic. I didn't understand any of this. I knew that eventually my body would decay. Then what? What would happen? Where would I go? Would I stay with my eventual skeletal remains, staring up at the light above? I remember thinking, this is going to be really boring sitting here in this fresh water for eternity. God, are you there? Why is this happening? Why am I here? Can you not hear me? Do you know I'm stuck down here in this watery grave? That's when I woke up, gasping to get air deep into my lungs. I sat up, awake for a bit before dozing off back to sleep until my alarm woke me up for work in the morning. A dream. All a dream. The reality is something happened that night. I felt it. I experienced it. It was completely surreal. I just don't know what the message is, or was it a future reality? All I know is that on that night, I died. In 2011, when I was dying from ketoacidosis, they brought me into the ER in a wheelchair. I was barely conscious and extremely weak. I remember seeing my reflection in a mirror and thinking, that wasn't a person. It was already a corpse in my clothes. If you don't know what ketoacidosis is, it's when a diabetic's blood sugar has been too high for too long and lowers the pH of the blood to the point where it becomes acidic enough to start eating your veins from the inside. You burn up. I was starting to hallucinate when they laid me down on the bed so they could get insulin and fluids into me. I thought I was lying in a Mediterranean courtyard, alone, in full sun, and I was too weak to move. The sun was so hot and bright my skin began to burn like a cigarette, turning to white ash and floating away to reveal 
glowing charcoals inside. I was so thirsty. At the same time, I could hear the nurses around me. I could hear them talking, but I couldn't speak. My mouth was too dry. I remember hearing one of them say they would have to open my corroded artery because all of my other veins had closed and shut down. I remember the horror of that and still not being able to move or react to it. After a while, I couldn't hear from either of them anymore. It was like a roar of machinery or a huge plane coming down. I felt like something was above me, but I couldn't see anything because it was too bright. I was burning and peeling away, and it was sucking whatever was left of me up into the sky. After that, there was blessed darkness, and eventually, I woke up in the ICU with my mom by my bedside. They told me later that if my dad had brought me into the ER even 20 minutes later, I would have probably died. They would have had to taken me straight into a resuscitation. It may not be as close to death as some others have been, I guess, but that courtyard and the feeling inside of my skin burning away like that has really stuck with me. I had an allergic reaction to a medication in a hospital, which caused a seizure that closed my windpipe. This happened late at night in a rural hospital, and some protocols were not followed. So it took the nursing staff a few minutes to respond to what was happening. Luckily, I survived, and left this experience with a much different perspective on life. Here is an account of my near-death experience. About 20 minutes after I took the medication and said goodnight to the nurse, things seemed to be okay. Then I started to feel something was wrong. I was completely conscious for the first few minutes of the seizure. However, my breathing slowly became shallower and turned to alarm as it became harder to swallow, and then panic when I couldn't breathe or cry out. I lost control and had a seizure. However, I was conscious through this moment. I realized I was suffocating to death and I tried to cry out, but the seizure overwhelmed me. Darkness crept on the sides of my vision. Then, the world slowly seemed to lose color saturation. Dying is the most uncomfortable feeling you will ever experience. The next part is truly hard to explain. Although I've explained it to close family members before, it's hard, but the best I can describe it is, it's as if I wasn't for an eternity, but also was. I was blacking out or going under anesthesia. You simply are turned off, then you're awake. Something like awake anyway. After an eternity passed, there was a light. Not a light at the end of the tunnel cliche. This was more like an infinite seam of light going from infinity up and down. And I was floating in space, moving very fast towards it. Then, I was somewhere familiar. I grew up in a rural mountainous area with lots of farm fields and nearby ski resorts. And there is one resort that my parents would take us when I was younger every summer. The resorts have summer events when it's not ski season. That is at the top of a winding road through a beautiful golden forest. I got the sense that this road, or something like it, was where I was at. In front of me, there was a hay cart to my left and some bales of hay to my right. Behind the hay cart was a man, and behind was a beautiful tree. Now, before you say... Jesus? Let me be clear. Now, I wasn't even thinking that. I wasn't even kidding at all, just experiencing if that makes sense. Nor did he resemble anything at all like how Jesus probably ought to look. 
This man had long hair, tied back, and wore a simple linen shirt. It reminded me in retrospect of a pirate shirt. Basically, your standard hippie type. He seems oddly familiar in retrospect, like someone I know I've met, but I can't place how I know them. I don't think it was Jesus, but part of me feels like it didn't really matter whatever or whoever it was. This entity was a friend. I got the sense the hay meant something. Every straw of hay in the hay bales meant something. There's a lot of work to do, he said without saying it, in a familiar voice that I can't place, and gestured to the hay. Then again, somehow without saying anything, I was presented with a choice. Stay and help this friend load up hay on the hay cart and head up the mountain or leave. I explained without words that I had to take care of my family, my mother who was not doing well at the time, and I couldn't stay. Without saying anything, just an expression of sadness and understanding, the man raised his hand and his finger towards me. Warmth flushed over my face. Then, like a whole movie in reverse, the mountain road fell away. The seam of light, the darkness, then there was warmth, which turned out to be my own blood as I was coughing all over my face. And, right at the frantic doctor holding a tube, they explained to me later that they gave me something like an EpiPen for the allergic reaction. So... That's what happened. I wasn't a religious person my whole life. I'm still not really. I was a long-time agnostic atheist in the same school of thought as Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. This experience planted a seed that over time has made me decide to be an agnostic theist. I don't know what I experienced. I don't like to recall what I experienced too much because every time you remember something like that, it's very challenging. Every straw of hay in that bale, I think, represented some transgression. You have a weight to deal with when it's over, and it seemed like it was being presented to me in a way I could understand. Maybe, if you grew up near the ocean, it would be shown to you as some sort of distant swim or something, or a lot of fish to bring back to shore. I grew up near farm fields, so this experience made sense to me. I'm writing this now because I want to put a record somewhere of what happened, and away from the earth of my mind, where it grew into a belief that there was an agent of our existence that is beyond our understanding. You can chalk it up to a DMT trip, my brain going haywire as it lost oxygen, or whatever suits your fancy. The experience was real to me, and it made me humble before the universe and filled an enormous sense of peace that your heaven and hay waits beyond somewhere. This story takes place back in April of 2018. I live in Long Island and was in my freshman year of high school. I was going through a tough time. Earlier in the week, my girlfriend broke up with me because of rumors she had heard about me, which I won't share. There was a lot of drama going around my life currently. Depression, broken hearts, you know, typical high school stuff. My mom knew I was down in the dumps, so one night she took me to get a new phone in the nearby mall. I have an iPhone 5, and at the time I was going to get an iPhone 8, so I needed a new one. We were gone for about an hour. We returned home with my dog greeting us. Let me tell you something about my dog. He's a short, stocky golden retriever who's never violent or vicious in any way. This is important for later. My dad was still at work. He normally works rather late, so it was my duty to take out the trash. I went through the front door with my dog resting on the porch and went to the side of the house to throw out the trash. 
when I was throwing the bag, I look over to my neighbor's house, and I noticed that I saw a guy dressed in all black around six feet tall walking out of their side door. Being a 14-year-old and incredibly paranoid, I had so many red flags going off in my head. Let me tell you something about my neighbors and my neighborhood. I live in a relatively safe neighborhood, but not 15 minutes away from walking distance, we live by a town that has a very, very high crime rate, ranging from muggings, drug dealing, and even murders from time to time. My neighbors, on the other hand, have an older stepson who drag races in parts of the town and hangs out with some, uh, not-so-savory people. For some stupid reason, I wasn't in the fight-or-flight mode yet because I was assuming that this could be one of his friends. Stupid of me, I know. Until there was another man and then another. I believe I counted about six guys in total dressed in all black coming out of the house and from the backyard. Then, I knew clearly what was going on, so I tried walking away as like I saw nothing. When I was on my driveway, I saw two of the six guys slowly walking towards me. My blood went cold within a few seconds as they were getting close. My dog went running off the porch chasing the six men down the street, chasing them into the night. My dog came back and I was still standing on my driveway trying to process what I just saw. I went back inside with my mom asking me what just happened. I told her what I just saw with the six men coming out of my neighbor's house and heading towards me. We called the police and they came over to ask me questions. I described the six men as best as I could. The police told me we're not the first to experience this as there were seven other burglaries all over town at the time and I probably witnessed them breaking in. I told the officers about two of the six guys walking toward me after I saw them. They told me that since I saw them, they were likely trying to stop a witness. That was basically a friendly way of them saying that the burglars were going to kill me, since I saw something that they were doing. As typical as this could get, the best they could do was file a police report. I was always afraid of break-ins, but I never thought I would experience one, and never think that I might die in one. Four years have gone by. My family now has a gun, and I'm currently training in kickboxing for self-defense.